Let's see if we can get the jazz hands going here. Come on, jazz hands. All right, there he goes. Larry Zanoff doing jazz hands. All right. And there goes Walter Keller doing jazz hands. We are live. We are live. I hope you got your big girl Hollywood panties on tonight. This is episode 304 of the Who Moved My Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Hank Strange. Here I am. We're coming back for this one-time special show. Here's your other host right there. Look at him, Walter Keller. Uh, he, he looks kind of like a zombie. Call an airstrike, please. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't hold it against him. Don't hold it against him. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm, in a, I'm in a cave someplace. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. It's called New Orleans. No, I'm not going to get yeah. that started. Right. Well, you yeah. Say what yeah. you want. Yeah. <laughs> and here's our special guest coming to us from from Hollywood, California. Can I say that, Larry? Are you? Yeah, actually, I'm in Bakersfield right now, which is where I live. I just work in, in Hollywood. Okay, there you go. Okay, he's representing yeah. Hollywood. There Larry go. Zanoff, there he goes. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend from uh, Independent Studio Services, uh, ISS, and of course, uh, Hollywood Weapons. Hollywood Weapons. Yes, what is it? Hollywood, the full title is Hollywood Weapons, Fact or Fiction, right? That is the full title, yeah. Yes. We try to disprove. We try to prove all the facts and disprove all the fiction. But all right, very cool, yeah. very cool. Going into its third season, third season airing um, Saturday, January fifth, in fact, um, and then uh, it'll run through the new eight episodes that we've we've filmed throughout this last couple of months, and then we'll be into season four uh, later in the year in twenty nineteen. Really exciting. Awesome. Awesome. On the Outdoor Channel for anyone. On the Outdoor Channel. And now it's available on Netflix as yes. well as on Amazon Prime. That's where we oh. watched it. One of those two yeah. we saw it on. Yeah. yeah. OK, yeah. so I've been watching it on Netflix. I didn't know you're also on Amazon Prime. That's awesome. It's a fairly recent thing. Yeah, we're real happy about that. Um, I think both uh, Netflix for sure and then the Amazon Prime as well has really uh, improved our circulation. Most people don't get Outdoor Channel. Right, um, you, got, uh, you got to pay extra for it. So this you got to pay extra for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, if people write in and we we see a little bit more response, mainly from the the Netflix and the Amazon Prime, uh, that helps networks get lower numbers on your cable box. You know, so then the standard boxes will come with Outdoor Channel, and that'll that'll improve circulation for oh. everybody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. That there you go. If so, if you don't know, if you've never heard of Larry Zanoff, uh, go Google him. There's going to be lots of stuff coming up. You know, but we're gonna. He's here. He's going to be with us for the whole two hours. Um, we're waiting for everyone to get in right now. I want to say what's up to everyone that's out there in the chat. Um, we're right now on hiatus, so that means we're coming back to do this special show. Then we're going to go back on hiatus. I think Lola said we're not coming back until January seventh ourselves. Okay. Uh, to do nice. it. Yeah. And then we'll be, of course, doing shows all the way up to SHOT Show. So we're going to be doing that. Um, I want to encourage everyone that's watching us now to uh, click the thumbs ups button because we need that. OK, hit those thumbs ups. Um, also, make sure you share this so we can get the word out for those folks who uh, don't realize that we're coming back on for this. Of course, leave your questions in here. We're going to kind of like skip over uh, the usual shout outs to anyone unless you just need a super special shout out. But you can leave your questions for Larry in here. So that, um, that's the way to go with that. And then I want to encourage everyone once again, uh, Outdoor Channel, you can get. Uh, Hollywood weapons there. You can also go to Netflix and you can go to Amazon Prime. 
And we now even have ball caps and T-shirts for Hollywood Ooh, Weapons. Which you, can, you can call into uh, ISS to the Expendables store and pick those up there as well. Okay. So that's, that's pretty cool. Is that yeah. on the website? Um, the Expendables store is, I don't know that they're advertising the hats and shirts yet. Okay, because I went it's on a fa- there. fairly recent thing. I went on the Expendables part of it, and I didn't see that, but I didn't go deep in it. So Yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, if you call up or email Expendables and ask for it, they, they have it on the shelf right now. Okay. Oh, very cool. Very okay. cool. And um, and then let's see. I think you're going to be at SHOT Show, right, Larry? I am going to be at SHOT Show. I'll be there uh, starting Sunday a uh, bunch of different uh, VIP range events that, that I need to go attend. And then I'll be at the show all four days, uh, okay, Tuesday cool. through Friday. Yeah. Okay. So we're for even, any industry. We're even fun. having a, a live talk kind of like this one at the Brownells booth uh, Wednesday nice. at 9 a.m., I believe. Um, so you're welcome to come down and listen to it, you know, live as it were. And, you know, I love talking to fans and everything after those those events. You feel free to come down, and shake a hand. If you want something autographed, we can do that too. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. So any industry people that are going to SHOT Show, you want to meet up with Larry, that's the place to do it. Brownells booth. I want to give a special shout out to them because I am, as you can see, a member of the Bureau of Propaganda. Of Brown there you go. <laughs> so shout out that's, to those that's, guys. <laughs> that's how we met, in fact, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we helped out with the uh, Brownells uh, tour across America that they were doing. Or what was it called? Yes. Convoy across America. That's what it was. Right. And uh, I think uh, they were kind enough. They actually selected ISS as the last point in the visit, you know. Um, which was pretty cool. And I could tell too, Hank, you know, you were, but that whole group, they were kind of tired out by the time they made it to ISS. And I think everybody walked in kind of going like, oh God, is this another place we got to drag through? But by the time they were done, I think they were pretty excited because it's a very, very unique place. Yes, absolutely. Now, Lola just asked me if you can tilt the, the camera down a little bit. I don't know whether you can or or you cannot. Like, because probably it's just, yeah, yeah. Like that yeah, way? That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, let's see. I'll I have to prop it up. If I don't have a hat on, yeah. then I get more light in here off yeah. my head. Yeah. Oh, no. So if you can, Larry, if not, you know, if not, it's yeah. fine. I want to make sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how, how much better that is. Yeah, that's good. I think that's good. Okay. okay. Hopefully, hopefully Lola will be able to live with it. So if anyone out there doesn't know, the whole uh, convoy across America with Brownells <clears throat> kind of started on this show, actually, Larry. You probably oh, really? know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of born here on the show because I always wanted to do a cannonball run kind of thing. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Brownells was nice enough to get involved with that and and help. So we basically came up with the idea. Brownells did all the work. Yeah. Also, my son came up with like a tour, a tour to the Brownells, that kind of idea. Yeah. you know. Yeah, well, we, you know, we're going to probably do it in further years because I think they had a good time. So we'll do different things. But um, so that's how that that's where that whole thing came from. So Josh Ryan and um, some other folks over at Brownells really helped out with that and did everything. And yeah, at the end, you know, so we started off in Florida and we drove um, all the way out to California. You were kind of like the last stop. Everyone was pretty beat up, I think, by the time we got out there. Yeah. But uh, but I think that it was and I'm not just saying this. It was the best stop because I'm a huge movie fan. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So eventually I know you saw us all tired and beat down. And yeah, he's always quizzing me on movies. And it's like, 
okay, come on, come on. I didn't see this obscure, <laughs> goofy movie like Nazis on the Moon and stuff. I didn't see that yeah. movie. So it's like, my favorite movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, here you go. Another one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Iron Sky. Shout out yeah. to Iron Sky yeah. out there. But uh, Larry, if Walter, if it doesn't have tanks in it, Walter probably is not very interesting. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. In, oh, well, there's, there's more than enough movies that have tanks in it. Oh, yeah. Also. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we can keep it. So, well, Walter, I mean, what's, you know, your fa- what's your favorite movie with the tank in it? Oh dear, God, you have to ask me that stuff. Let's see here. Um, oh hell. Um, well, what did you just go see? Didn't you just go see the the footage from World War One that was yeah, recolored? That, yeah, the, the World War One movie that's been recolorized and everything. But that that's got tanks. Yeah, it does have tanks. Yeah, the the first tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, was that that uh, they shall not grow old? Yes. yes yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. well, that was a very interesting project, actually. Yeah, yeah. that was a lot of um, yeah, because uh, yeah, they did a really good job. If you get a chance to see it, check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to see it. Walter's seen it. Color makes it. You know, you see these black and white movies, and you go black and white, and you just don't see it. But when it goes color, and you see the blood, and you see the, you know, the the different shades of the uniforms and stuff, it puts it all in perspective. So. Changes yeah. it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So people are trying to chime in out there, Larry, just so you know, okay. some, someone's saying Fury, someone's saying Tank was good, someone's saying um, Black Hawk Down. <laughs> yeah, Fury, Fury, that's a that's a good, I mean, the, 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 tank, the tank work in that was pretty good. The movie was a little weird, I thought, um, you know, the whole, the storyline and just some of the scenes in the movie, like the, the, fan, the German family that they eat dinner with and that one has sex with and then the book apartment gets blown up. I was thought going, what the heck was that about? <laughs> but anyways, you know, so I think that was probably to keep the movie interesting for people who were not yeah, tank military fans. type people. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're paying, you're paying for a movie ticket. So the whole crowd has to get yeah. uh, satisfied with it, you know? Yeah. No, but, but the, uh, the whole, the, 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 the weapons and stuff like that, that was good in that movie. I like Yeah, that. it was. Yeah. Have you ever, Harold, have you ever seen the movie, the beast? The Beast. It was about a T. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, they may have released it here called, under the term the the tank. Oh, well, that was about the but, German and Russian crew. They're chasing each other. No, it uh, was about um, or a Russian. Russian tank crew in Afghanistan. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a T sixty two tank. Uh, that was actually a very good one too, as far as the equipment mm. and showing the capabilities of the tank and everything. If you're into right. armor, that's a really good movie. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, someone's saying Kelly's Heroes. There's a whole bunch of them. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I think Inglorious Bastards had some tank stuff in it, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Um, yeah. Let's see. Well, Saving they Private had Ryan. Something in the, Saving Private Ryan was good. Uh, Kelly's Heroes was entertaining. Right. I don't know how historically accurate no, it might have yeah. been. I, I always loved the old movies where they have a, a Sherman with a Iron Cross on it. You know, that's what I always, you know, where they, like, they don't have any German tanks, like Dress up the American tanks like Patton, the movie Patton. I think they had the same way. Oh, I think the 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 worst defender was probably the Rat Patrol, where you had Sherman tanks and American half tracks all painted up as German vehicles. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think that's kind of what happens to the side that loses the war. Um, a lot of their equipment doesn't always, uh, you know, remain available and in running condition. Right. Well, and in, and in reality, the Germans did use a lot of captured equipment. So for sure, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, not only so tanks, but aircraft and small right. arms. That's what you don't do. you don't see that in propaganda newsreels, but in, re- in reality, they use thousands of captured weapons. So yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just going to say this. My favorite movie with a tank in it is uh, Tank Girl. So there you go. Were there boobs in that one? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> I had to get that qualification out of That is absolutely positive. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about, Walter. I don't know. Do you, Larry? I, 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 I have felt a shift in the force just now. <laughs> the conversation was kind of going in one direction, <laughs> and now everything kind of, yeah, that was, that was interesting. Um, Tank, hey, Tank Girl is a movie. It's legitimate. You know what? Tank Girl was actually a very popular movie, and I believe it was based on a Japanese uh you know, anime type cartoon, yeah. uh, which was hugely popular. Um, and the movie, well, it wasn't, you know, considered Academy Award winning material. It truly no. has a big cult <laughs> following. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I that, like that's horrible. Kind of for it. I like horrible 80s movies. Just FYI. The 80s had a lot of them, you know. Yes. <laughs> now, so we're gonna so we're gonna talk to Larry about. Uh, we'll probably start with how you started doing what you're doing. Have you explained some of that to the folks out there? If there's people who don't know, but um, you weren't making movies in the 80s. I'm gonna assume. No, I was not making movies in the 80s. Um, my intro into the entertainment uh, industry. Uh, I usually describe it as being in the wrong place at the wrong time and having a misspent youth. Um, that's that's kind of how I fell into it. The 80s, I was actually living overseas. I grew up most of my life overseas. And um, I was in the Israeli military during the 80s fighting a war uh, awesome. in Lebanon. Well, I mean, not good. 80s, yeah, so. yeah, that part of it is wasn't not awesome. It really, yeah, no. awesome would or, not yeah, have been yeah. the, the way. Were, you, were you employed it. by the IDF when they when they liberated all the Palestinian weapons? I was. Uh, the stuff that we pulled out of the, the – they had literally had tunnels and caverns oh. under Beirut. Um, the stuff that was, was pulled out of there was unbelievable just as far as the quantity of it. But as far as the, the various range of things that we found there too, I mean we found everything from helicopters and trucks that were being stored underground to – crates of unused brand new stg 44s still oh. packing grease it was what? just it was unbelievable <laughs> yeah i mean um it was very very interesting if you're into small arms and everything it was quite the uh interesting kind of event um just because of all the history in that part of the world anyway and then seeing all the, those those weapons uh it, all in one place it was just kind of amazing and, and yeah. at that, and then then the Israelis sold all that stuff to like Century Arms, and Century Arms started importing all that stuff. And um, I refuse to answer that question on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought some of those that stuff that was captured there, and I was like, "Oh yeah. wow!" This is cool uh, stuff. Some of that stuff might have trickled through Larry's fingertips, maybe. <laughs> That's all right. Is this microphone working? I refuse to answer that question on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. <laughs> so okay, so let's do this. Let's do this. Let's. Uh, so where did a little, where did a young uh, Larry Zadoff start out? Um, I'm. A, I think when I was looking at your bio, you are an American citizen. I think maybe are you a dual I have citizen? citizen. I have dual citizenship. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I actually I was born in Philadelphia, and uh, my my father, may rest in peace, was a, a mechanical engineer that always worked with um, defense contracting companies, doing some very technical stuff. Uh, so when I was about four and a half, five years old, uh, we moved with my father to Israel because he was hired by the Israeli Ministry of Defense. 
to do some very technical work. Uh, so I basically grew up there, kindergarten, first grade, all the way through elementary and high school. Um, got dual citizenship because if you're Jewish and you live in Israel for more than three consecutive years, you automatically get Israeli citizenship bestowed upon you. Um, so and then you automatically get a chance to be in the army then, right? You have to go fight. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> always that. There's always pluses and minuses. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I did uh, at 18, when you graduate from high school, you, you have to go into the military mandatory. You can defer it. There's certain um, educational programs where if you're going into specific fields, you can go to college first and then go into the military. But but the majority of teenagers upon uh, graduation from high school, both male and female, all go into the military. Okay. Is that like, is that 18? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so went through the military. Uh, usually it's uh, three years mandatory service for, for males and two years for females. Uh, that's changed a little bit now, but that's what it was back in the 80s. I did a little bit more than that because of the unit I was in and because when there's a war going on, uh, those rules kind of go out the window. So they kind of keep you a little longer sometimes, uh, depending upon what you're doing. Um, and uh, then when I finally did get released, I came. my parents had moved back to the States years before. So I finished my military service there and then came back to visit them. Uh, with the intention of going back, actually, I wanted to learn how to be a gunsmith, go to college for that. Um, so I started kind of working towards that. In the meantime, met the love of my life, you know, got married and all the things that happen in life. So I kind of stayed here, uh, worked for a machine gun factory here in California, Calico Light Weapon Systems. Ah. Uh, we made all kinds of different high cap magazine firearms. Uh, right up to Calico. the point that, yeah, right up to the point that uh, the company basically went out of business due to the '94 uh, high capacity magazine ban in California. Uh, our big selling point was the high capacity magazine. Without that, the gun uh, really wasn't worth very much. And so, uh, oddly enough, you know, they talk about one door closing and one door opening. Uh, someone who had gone to college with me was already working in the industry, in the, in the entertainment industry, and they needed another qualified gunsmith, but not just someone who could like engrave metal and make a stock, someone who was also familiar with military firearms. Because let's face it, when you're watching a movie, that's the stuff that gets people excited. Um, and that individual called up to the college and said, hey, who do you got who's good with, you know, military weapons and stuff like that. And you, you know, got my phone number and they said, this is the guy that you want to call. And, uh, it's pretty much been downhill since then. <laughs> it's, it's been, I think it's a good thing, right? It's it good. is a good thing. It's, it's actually a wonderful, uh, industry. Um, for me personally, you know, I've worked in law enforcement, I've worked in the military world, private security as well. And to be able to use kind of like you know, I'm 50, I'll be 54 in January. So to be able to utilize like 54 years of knowledge of, of weaponry and things like that in something that brings other people joy and pleasure, you know, going to the movies is always something fun that people like to do. Um, that really just is very satisfying to be able to go to a movie and, you know, watch people laugh and clap and throw popcorn at the screen and know that, you know, hey, I had a tiny little part in doing that. 
not a big mm-hmm. one, but hey, I was the guy on set that was running, you know, that that minigun on the rubber boat out on the water or, you know, the, the gun in the helicopter somewhere or even just, you know, instructing the actors and, and supporting the, the production from behind the scenes. It's, it's very, very it's creative. It's, it's very um, hands on and it's very satisfying. Okay, very cool. So if we check IMDb, we will see. I, I, I checked it. Larry Zanoff is there, and you're on a whole bunch of movies, right? Movies, television shows, commercials, live performances, anything in the entertainment realm, uh, we basically handle because uh, we are at at our core, we're a prop house, um, which provides not just weapons. I happen to work in the weapons department, but as you saw uh, when you did the tour, Hank, the the prop house is just huge and you have everything from you know the lost ark from you know a raiders movie to cell phones to sunglasses to you know rubber guns for yeah use, there's the lawnmowers in there there's ladders yep. yeah sporting there's just goods. regular tools yeah think of anything you've ever seen in a television show or a movie it's got to come from somewhere and we hope that it that it comes from us Okay, very cool. And uh, so you've been working with, um, that's ISS, right? Independent Studio Services. Independent Studio Services, yes. Not to be confused with ISS, the International Space Station, which (laughs) happens when you do the Google search. So look up Independent Studio Services and you'll see what we have to offer. Yes, absolutely. And you've been doing that for how long? Like, when did you? Gosh, I've been doing this uh, probably since about 98. In the in the film industry, yeah. Wow. Okay. So cool. about twenty years. Okay, and then uh, and what's your classification over there? Your armorer. Well, I mean, we we call it motion picture armorer, um, which is a little bit deceiving because most people think of an armorer as a guy who's sitting at a bench with a hammer, kind of like a gunsmith kind of guy. Uh, in the film industry, there's a little bit of a different definition. An armorer is is the person who's responsible for weapons on the set. And when I say responsible for weapons, that really means everything. So I'm responsible for the safety aspects. I'm responsible sometimes for the training of the actors, um, setting up the different camera angles because, you know, you consult with the director. You know, our job as prop people, because we even though we're armorers, we're still considered prop people. Our job is to take the director's vision and make it come to life up on screen. And so you, you talk to all the different departments and you interwork, you know, interact with them with wardrobe, you know, how does this holster fit into the wardrobe? Is it going to mess up the, the hang of the clothes, special effects? You know, we, we do one side of a gun battle which is the gunfire, but the other side is the special effects department. So even just technical things like I'm shooting a handgun and the effects department is rigging the bullet hits compared to I'm shooting a minigun, shooting at 3,000 rounds a minute and having to cue the bullet hits so that it looks correct. You know, mm-hmm. those are all things that the onset armorer does. Okay, very cool. I'm going to try to get to some questions here. Let me see. Sure. Um, and then, you know, uh, like I said before, we, we started all this, you know, Larry's really here to talk about what he does and uh, guns and movies and things like that. Um, you know, of course, Larry's in Hollywood, so we're not trying to do anything to make it more difficult for him than it already is to be in Hollywood. 
we, we, you're, you're a second amendment guy, right? You're a gun guy. Uh, I'm definitely a gun guy. I've been a gun guy my entire life for sure. Yes. I mean, I can literally remember being like six years old, sitting at the kitchen table with my father, helping him disassemble his, you know, firearms and clean them and maintain them. So definitely guns are in the blood. Yeah. We don't want to do anything though, to make it more difficult for you. Walter, did you want to say something? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Um, someone was asking, <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask this question, but you could tell us Larry, if you don't want to answer anything. Okay. Someone, uh, someone wanted to know if the IDF women are as hot <laughs> as Instagram shows them to be. Uh, they, in fact, they are not. Instagram does not do them justice. They are actually hotter than what you see uh, on Instagram. Um, Israel is a very, very beautiful country. And uh, not to use a cliche, but the people are also very beautiful. Uh, it comes from uh, mixing of the genetic backgrounds. You know, there's so many immigrants that come, you know, and live in Israel, whether from the former Soviet Union or from the United States or from, you know, Asia or even Africa. And so that intermingling, that boiler pot kind of effect is, is what gives rise to uh, uh, the beauty both of the landscape and of the people. Okay, very cool. I'm guessing this is why you didn't really want to leave. You were planning. You know, I, I really enjoyed living in Israel. Um, and it, it, to me, even though at this point I have, I have just recently, you know, spent more years in the United States now than I did in Israel. Uh, but Israel to me is still home when I think of it. There's so much history. Uh, the people are so warm and, and open. And, you know, that's one of the things I think people really miss out on if you've never been to Israel all you see is like bad things on CNN and that's not what the country's like it's a normal country people go to the movies and go out on Friday nights and you know spend time at the beach and they live a normal life um, there are bad things that happen but there are bad things that happen everywhere so uh, you shouldn't think about only what you see on television as a guide you should you know take the opportunity to go there and see the country for yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's, um, that kind of goes for, for anywhere. I don't want to say everywhere. That's uh, not everywhere. Wanna, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily say <laughs> it's everywhere. Not everywhere, but here's the thing. Like I, I lived in uh, Nigeria when I was a kid, you know, there you, go. I, I, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I think I came to America when I was 11. So I grew up outside of America until that time. And Nigeria is, a, you know, if, when you look at it in the news and all that kind of stuff, it's it's violent and there's a lot of terrible things. And if you talk to like my older brother, he'll tell you it was completely horrible. But, <laughs> you know, if you live somewhere from when you're a kid and you live somewhere, everything's not horrible. There's still these romantic ideas of things you have in your mind that, hey, we, you know, there was cool stuff. You're living there as a human being. The people that have to live around the world. They're still human beings and they go about their life, except for those terrible things that could happen based on the government and the people that live there. For sure. And I mean, let's be honest, you could walk out onto the streets of L.A. or any metropolitan city in the States, New York or whatever, and you'd get hit by a bus. Right. Uh, and, and you go that, one block, one block over too far in the French Quarter and you might end up uh, having an issue. So. There you go. And by the way, Walter, where did you say you were right now? Uh, New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> How far away from the French Quarter? Oh, I'm actually in a straight line, probably, probably in a straight line, five, five miles, maybe. There you go. So you're still safe, is what you're saying. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. This neighborhood is yeah. cool here. It's a normal middle class neighborhood. Yeah. You know, though, the thing that you were talking about, though, Hank, is so very true. Um, and people in the United States 
that don't travel very much. And traveling is not going from Louisiana to Florida. Traveling is leaving the country, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't been to other countries, countries in Africa and Europe and Asia, um, you can't really, you, you can see the beauty when you go there, but then you also appreciate what we have here in the United States yeah. when you come back. And if you haven't seen the, uh, the, the, the comparison, it's very hard to, appreciate and understand the, the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think so. You know, it, almost everyone in America needs to leave. I'm not telling people to go anywhere, but you probably should just so that you can appreciate a little bit more what it is to be an American. Lots yep. of guys who served in the military that leave and go to other places, okay. they uh, they get that benefit and they pay for it, though, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, but take they, do, they do. They do fine work. They they you know, dedicate their lives to protecting this country. If they get to travel as a result of that, okay. But uh, the travel is not why they're there. It's not why they're doing this, obviously. Yeah, so, yeah um, absolutely. Ultimate respect to anyone who puts on a uniform, be it in the military or EMS services, uh, public safety, whatever it may be, uh, putting on a uniform, you know, definitely means you're dedicating your life to something beyond, you know, just the average kind of workaday Uh, profession. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things in my experience from going to other countries that separates America, not going to say all, but most of the people in America that put on a uniform, police officers to people serving in the military, firefighters, all that kind of stuff, they take that incredibly seriously, which people don't necessarily take it so seriously in other places of the world. Some some people do. That's how you keep law and order. And that's always a reflection of uh, how good it really is to live in that country, right? I think so. I mean, um, you can read foreign press, which actually I encourage anyone to do. Don't only get, you know, the U.S. sources. Get online and look out, you know, seek out foreign press articles. But you can see that, by and large, there's other countries, certain parts of the world that the law enforcement, let's say, is corrupt. (laughs) Government is corrupt. And it's just kind of an accepted thing that that's the way it is when here in the United States, you're, you know, you're taught the policeman, the fireman, whoever that guy is in uniform with a badge, he's there to help you. He's there to protect you. Little kids, you know, if you're lost, what are you supposed to do? Find a policeman. He's going to help you. And I think that's a fundamental difference that we have here in the United States compared to not every country in the world, but to many countries uh, in the world. Things are different here and people should really appreciate uh, that difference. Yes. Um, Okay. So I'm going to try to take some uh, questions. I see a lot of questions of people wanting to know if you worked on John Wick. Can you? So I did not, I did not work on John Wick. Um, Mm -hmm. John Wick was, was mainly filmed in New York. um, And the uh, legislation, the rules and regulations throughout the country of what constitutes a blank gun and, Uh you know, what blank guns are able to be used on the streets and everything are a little bit different. Um, We, even though we have cool guns and stuff like that, we still have to abide by all the laws and rules and regulations of every Joe public that's out there. And so we have to abide by New York's laws, a little bit different than California's laws. And so there's a there's another armory in New York and they do most of the gun stuff uh, in New York. OK, yeah. because they have to be specifically licensed in New correct. York to have those yeah. things. That is correct. Um, a, little, a little bit of politics probably involved with that, too. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing they're Teamsters. 
There's some kind of. I refuse to answer yeah. that question on the ground. <laughs> so I'm incriminating myself. <laughs> um, I used to be a teamster a long time ago, so I kind of. There you go. Yeah, one of the one of the uh, one of the foreign countries I've lived in is actually New York City. <laughs> so. <laughs> When I came here in the 80s, I grew up in New York City, so I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Beautiful city, uh, but like every other place here in the United States, every place has their own flavor and their own, yeah. you know, kind of feel and vibe to it and everything. And uh, works for some people, works doesn't work for other people, but that's why we have such a big country. Yeah. Yeah. And New York City was big for movies for a long time. Um, I think they still... I think they still have um, like an actual police unit that is dedicated to TVs, TV shows and film crews and all that. Because I had a friend that his son worked in that unit. Yeah. So, you know, most people maybe don't realize this because, you know, the image of movie making is Hollywood and Hollywood's in California. But the film industry in the United States actually began uh, at the beginning of the 20th century in New York. That's where it began um, due to different restrictions and some union policy and stuff like that. The, the industry drifted westward, westward to Hollywood uh, and kind of took root here for a variety of reasons, Weather. not the least of which was geography. Weather. Because what's that? <laughs> Weather. Weather. Weather, exactly. Yeah, geography and weather. You could be at the beach, and by the end of the day, you could be in the mountains. The you desert. could film in the desert. You could film in the snow. And so for, for many production reasons, California was a little bit better. But um, New York has always maintained a very strong film industry, both television and movies. Um you know, all of the stage plays and things like that. We always think of, you know, New York. That's where a lot of the in entertainment industry is based in this in this country. And so Hollywood and New York are actually kind of like bookends, east and west coast. And, of course, Atlanta is uh, picking up on that. Atlanta, Georgia is doing the same yeah. thing now. Lots of production uh, being done there, as well Georgia. as in uh, New Orleans. Louisiana. Louisiana is yeah. a big uh, – yeah. Yeah, mainly because of tax incentives. Yeah, oh, you, have know, to have, it, you have to have a you have to have a um, a cooperative political environment for it to make yes. it work. If you have yes. one that's anti this or anti that or overtaxed, it don't work. Yeah. yeah, you know the thing to remember too about the the entertainment industry, you know, you you have this image of of a couple people on set. You got the actors. You got a guy with a camera and a director with a bullhorn, but the the industry itself brings in so much income to, to Southern California, to Atlanta, to New York, and it goes beyond just the movie set. You think about it, dry cleaners, hotels, restaurants, limousine services, all yeah. those different elements of a society, uh, they all feed off of the entertainment industry. Um, and so it's a very, very successful industry to have in your area. Uh, it has a lot of pull. Of course, we love the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood. Um, so th there's a lot of tax incentives out there to draw production into different areas, which I think is a good thing because, you know, if you put all your eggs in one basket, you know, you're, you're taking a risk. Mm -hmm. yep. Absolutely. So, uh, so my understanding is we've got 
uh, Hollywood, we've got New York, and then we've got Atlanta. Uh, and I know Minnie's over there making some trouble for you. Right? Well, owner, that's what. It yeah, is. <laughs> um, and, and we've got New Orleans and Atlanta. Is there anywhere else that New New Mexico is actually a very good uh, filming uh, venue? Um, again, because of the geography, a lot of westerns are done out there. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff in Florida in the past. Okay. But okay. I would say that uh, Hollywood, New York, Atlanta, uh, Louisiana, and New Mexico uh, within the United States are probably the big uh, locales. And again, a lot of it's driven by location, by by the geography itself. Uh, you're not going to do, you know, a Hawaiian jungle type <laughs> movie in New Mexico. Um, even though nowadays with, with CGI and with green screen and stuff like that, all you really need is a studio somewhere and yeah. you could achieve uh, about 70 to 80% of everything you needed. But there's, there's a certain part of that realism that, you know, if you're going to be in the jungle in the movie, you have to go and film in a jungle. Yeah. And so um, that, that's some stuff that modern technology has not been able to duplicate yet. Yeah, we can still, I think we can still tell the difference. You know, for um, sure. You know, the, the like for me as a gun guy, when I watch a movie, even if it's a movie that I didn't work on, I'll be watching it shot by shot and thinking to myself, how did they do that? How did they film that? Where was the camera angle on that? And when I look at it and you go, oh, pff, they didn't have to worry about the camera angle because it wasn't a real gun. It was, you know, flashes that were put in by CGI, uh, computer generated images. I can pick that out. I know guys mm -hmm. that are good, like, that way with cars, you know, they can, they yeah. can hear the sound of an engine three blocks away and know that it was the 67 overhead, you know, 571, whatever it right, was. Right. That's the way I look at it when, when I'm dealing with guns and specifically guns in the film industry. Um, so yeah, technology, you need that realism. That's thank goodness. That's why we're still in business. When, when an actor needs a gun in their hand, they need to feel the recoil. They need to see the flash. They need to, you know, feel the weight of the firearm. If you don't have that, it really does come across, you know, in, in the on screen kind of appearance. And I've always kind of, you know, made the analogy that, that if the prop department does their job correctly, it's kind of like a, a security program running in the background of a computer. You never really notice it, but it's there doing its job. Um, so you buy into the movie. The guns are right. The cars are right. The wardrobe is right. You disappear into, let's say, a 1930s gangster movie for two hours. But if you have one gun that's out of place or you have one car that didn't exist in that time period, it pulls you out. It kind of busts the bubble Mm -hmm. of of that that television show or movie and that's what ruins things uh for people because i'll i'll tell you honestly the amount of effort that goes into a bad movie is exactly the same amount of effort that goes into a good movie it's 16 weeks out on set long hours so the thing that makes one work and one not work are the the tiny little details the um the props, the good writing, the dialogue, the actors, of course, uh, and, and the crew. You, you only see the actor in front of the camera, but there's like 100 people behind the camera that are supporting from wardrobe to hairdo and makeup to the gaffers to electrical. Without all those elements gelling correctly, you're not going to get a good movie. 
Yeah. And I think the final, this is just my opinion, you know, um, the final element of a movie is the audience and that audience has to, to suspend their disbelief, right. To really sink into this world and, and believe that it's real. You, you do. Um, I don't know how much it's a, a true suspense of this belief as much as it's a desire to buy into the story. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, I, I don't think people, you know, they don't want to, wait in line to see a movie going, I know it's not going to be real, but I want to see it anyway. You know, they, <laughs> they, they want to go in and go, I wonder what it was like living in Chicago in the 1920s. I hope this movie shows me what it, what it was like. And if, and if a film is done um, correctly and, you know, at, at independent studio services, as far as props go, we, we take this very seriously, especially when you're doing a historical piece we feel very responsible for the, the visual of that historical piece because, again, if you put something in incorrect, like, hey, that watch didn't exist in the 1920s or something like that, a lot of people learn their history from movies nowadays. And, mm-hmm. and so we're, we're helping educate people to certain things. So you really want to go that extra mile to make sure that what you're putting out there is correct because, you know, you get a credit – People think it's cool to get a credit on a movie, but there's a responsibility there. If, if you did something wrong, if something in the movie was bad, people are going to look up that credit and go, oh, what does Larry Zanoff know? He didn't know anything. He's got the yeah. wrong gun in that movie. Yeah. You know? So you're, you're um, saying like if, if in a movie there's a Glock and it has a hammer on it, yeah. How horrible that, that might be. throw that right? might throw someone off. <laughs> and so, you know, a great example that is a great example, and, and we shall not name names or you know projects or anything like that. But uh-huh. sometimes you have to do things because the director is just trying to tell a story. And that's really where the suspension of disbelief in suspension of reality comes in. You know, it doesn't really matter, like in Rat Patrol, didn't really matter <laughs> that it was an American tank with a German you know, Iron Cross painted on it because you're just trying to tell a story. But when you get something that's like really wacky, then yeah, it kind of stands out and you kind of lose the the, the storyline. So yeah. it's a fine line. You walk when, when you're when you're making a movie, you um, you're being creative. You are making something, and people pay a lot of money to go and see what you made, and they expect certain things out of you. Um, so we do our best to try to try to be spot on yeah. with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or they give up on you if um, things happen. Like there's lots of folks that want me to to ask you about Walking Dead. Now, um, I don't know if you have any affiliations with Walking Dead. We we have rented many many props on okay. Walking Dead, and mm-hmm. we've had. Uh, some of our armors, we have guys all over the country. Some of our guys have worked on Walking Dead. I have not worked on it myself. I have prepped some guns that got shipped to our guys in Georgia, uh, but I haven't actually worked on the show itself. Okay. So you guys don't take any responsibility for for there being machine guns fired at vehicles on Walking Dead, and there's no damage <laughs> done to those to those vehicles. Well, what kind of bullets were they firing, Hank? What kind of vehicle was it? You have to ask yourself these questions. You can't just kind of make a blanket, you know, uh, statement like that. It's very, very important. How much does the production have for real bullets? I mean, come on. There you go. You know, yeah. You know what? Again, I mean, if you go back, we were talking about shows from the 80s, right? So so here's one I'm going to dredge up. 
Okay, how true. One, how wonderful was the A-team? Oh, it was, oh, it was awesome. Everybody loves, oh, yeah, right. Everyone loves the A-team. No one ever died in that show. How can you st- uh, ever try thousands, to hide behind it? Thousands of rounds were fired and nobody ever died in that show. But it was still a good show, right? Uh-huh. We, yeah. we watched the A-team yeah. all the time. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was 12 or something. But. <laughs> I feel so no, old now, Hank. Thank you. <laughs> No, okay, it's true. That's true. The A team was awesome. Yeah, how, right? how how long can you hide behind a sheet metal fifty five gallon drum with a rifle, <laughs> machine gun being fired at you, and not get hurt? I mean, there you go. But you know, it, again, they were telling a certain story, and right. and sometimes, you know, let me put it to you another way: uh, kids nowadays and and, and grown ups for that matter are very into video games, Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, different yeah. things like that. How many games have you seen where your prize when you kind of up a level is now you've got the 50 caliber desert eagle and somehow that 50 caliber desert eagle can take thousand yard shots do we really (laughs) do we really care no when you're playing the game you don't care you got the cool gun that you wanted and you take the shot with it so um they're trying to be more realistic too but it, it is entertainment we're not you know we're not changing the world here we're just we're entertaining people so you always got to keep that in mind yeah, it is a balance. And I guess that's where Hollywood Weapons comes in. I know that you guys did one of your shows where you tested the theory, I guess, in uh, cowboy movies that people would hide behind the water trough. Yep. Yep. And that, that, and was, a good that was somehow bulletproof. And that that came out to be true, right? You hide behind. The- it did. Surprisingly enough, it was both concealment and cover. Um, the bullets, we were shooting uh, 45 caliber rounds, which were the typical rounds of the day, uh, round those lead bullets, which is what they would have had in the day. Uh, it, it actually penetrated through the front of the water trough, through the water and kind of embedded in the back part, but it protected the, the guy who was hiding behind the, the water trough. So that, w- that was one of the ones that we, you know, scored up as a, as a yes, that could be done kind of thing uh, on Hollywood weapons, which like you said, that's where that show comes in because it's a really good complement to both uh, the entertainment industry where you might go a little bit far just to tell a story. And then you compare that to the real world and you realize, well, they embellished it a bit in the movie, but it does actually work, you know. And we're actually running a more success rate of things working than things not working. Um, so, again, you know, the, the, the film industry is kind of based on reality, it mirrors reality, and it, the, the, the real world and the entertainment world kind of bounce off of each other back and forth. So it's kind of fun to see that, you know, stuff like that that happens in the movies can actually be done in real life. Yeah, yeah. Walter, did you want to um, did you want to get anything in here? Uh, I see this, uh, let me see. I can't see the chat, so I'm right at the oh. moment. So. Oh, you yeah. can't see the chat? Okay, cool, yeah. yeah. Um, the, chat <laughs> is very, the chat is very lively. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, the chat is very live. I'm working. I'm trying to get it. get up on my phone, but it's not. I'm not. For some reason. Uh, I'm to... Yeah. Someone wants to know. Uh, let me see. Scamp 900. Was Larry working on the crow when Brandon Lee was killed? Does he have any comment on that? Okay. Um, um, so, um, to the person who asked that question, uh, my kids constantly remind me of how old I am, but I'm not that old. Okay? <laughs> uh, the crow was just a little bit uh, before my time. Um, I also, you know, within my job at Independent Studio Services, I also teach the industry safety class as far as firearms 
on set. There's a whole regime of classes that that employees of the entertainment industry need to take nowadays just to be able to set foot on a movie set. Uh, safety awareness around you know heavy equipment, safety awareness around electrical lines. And there's a component that is a safety uh, component for firearms. Um, all of those kind of things were not really around when the accident happened mm-hmm. with with the crow. Yeah, um, what was the crow? Early nineties. Gosh, uh, it was either yeah, it was either early nineties or just at the end of the eighties. I, w- I would think, like I said, a little bit before my time uh, mm-hmm. in the film industry. Um, the level of professionalism. Uh, on a movie set nowadays, even compared to what it was, let's say, 10 years ago, um, because of the demand of the newer technologies and because of the the level that the audiences demand, the, the level of the crews has grown just uh, in huge proportions. And so if it's a you know, competent production that's doing things the right way, which most of them do, uh, they'll have an onset armor. And, and in that particular case, an accident like happened with the crew, I don't want to say is impossible to have happened today, but it's, it's as close to impossible as, as you could imagine. Um, that was a string of events that, uh, you know, w- was very odd, very different, uh, kind of like a, a lightning uh, bolt striking twice in the same spot. It can happen, but very, very rarely. So, um, yeah. I think the crow terrible was nice. tragedy could mm-hmm. have been averted, uh, obviously, but that's why they call them accidents. It, there was no, there was no curse involved against the, the Lee uh-huh. family. There was no uh-huh. malice involved in any way. It was just a a series of some, you know, uh, bad circumstances uh, that, that created that situation. Yeah, The Crow on IMDb was 1994. There you um, go. It, it could have been actually filmed a little uh, before Quite a bit that. earlier, yeah. Yeah, because it probably got slowed down. Probably yeah. probably when it was being filmed. Yeah. That's and another thing mm-hmm. that you got to realize about the film industry, like for, for we people that work in it, you kind of live in a, in a time capsule, a weird kind of time delay thing because you're working on the project and it consumes your entire life while you're working on it. But then it takes a year before it hits theaters. And when that movie hits the theaters, you're already working on another show. So for you, that movie is like old stuff. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, not really always the excitement of seeing it come out on the screen because you know the story, you know what's happened, and it's a year old for you at that point. Yeah. Well, that's why you'll see a Chris, like Chris Pratt, for example. He becomes a hot actor out there, and then in a year, you'll see five movies with Chris Pratt. Well, he didn't do all those movies that year. Correct. Yeah. yeah. They just decided, oh, he's hot. We're putting everything you know, out with him no matter what. And and the entertainment industry, you know, it's it's a very odd combination of being in the creative world and being in the business world because mm-hmm. making movies and selling tickets, it, it's still a business. If we if we don't make money on films, there won't be another film for you to go to see next year. So you have to earn that money. And sometimes the financial decisions outweigh the creative ones. Sometimes the creative ones outweigh the financial ones. Um, so it's a very interesting realm where you're, you need creative people, but you also need very business-minded people. And a lot of research goes into when to release certain movies. So like you said, they could have made a specific film 
two years ago and for whatever reason decided not to release it yet. And then all of a sudden three films come out in a row. You know, it's, it's uh, people way smarter than me are the ones that figure all that out, but I think they're pretty successful at it. Yeah. And, and the other thing I think about uh, like accidents and things like that happening on a set, it happens. So this is the thing, even right now, there's people, there's stunt guys. It's uh, there's, I think there's no job out there that people do that someone can't potentially die in that job. Right. Uh, if you have a job that no one can potentially die in that job, let us know because human beings die, but accidents happen as well. Yeah. I, I think the thing to remember, uh, like we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, you could walk out in the middle of the street and get hit by a bus accidentally, you know, things happen, life happens. Um, as an overall, I think the film industry has one of the greatest success rates as far as a safety um, record of any industry out there, you know. Uh, but things happen, people get injured. Um, it, it's, you're dealing with humans, you know, humans mm -hmm. make mistakes. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, so it's really a matter of being on your toes at all times. Uh, all the studios have excellent, you know, safety personnel that that are out on sets. There's, if you were ever out on a movie set, you'd be surprised how much effort goes into just like one little scene. You could be filming for three weeks a scene that on the screen when the movie comes out is only 30 seconds. And yet three or four weeks or more of work and effort went into it because of everybody's desire to do things safely without anyone getting hurt. And again, I think that's one of the magic uh, elements of the job that we do as onset armors is you're taking firearms and there's flash and there's flame and there's hot brass coming out of them. And yet we can do things over and over and over again, no matter how many takes you need. And we can do it safely because we've, we've learned the art of controlling those elements and being able to form them into the movies that people see in the movie theater. Yeah. Okay. Very good answer to that. All right. So let me see. I'm going to try to get well, to I'm trying other... to do this kind of thing for a living. So I try to come <laughs> up with good answers like that, Hank. So yeah. maybe people will invite me onto podcasts or something. You know? <laughs> I think you're I think you're gonna be really your career is gonna take okay. off of yeah, I'll, 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 I'll let you know. I'll let you know how that works out for me. Okay. Yeah. Go go ahead, Walter. I'll try to get a hundred rounds out of an eight-round mag, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> That's just okay. Good question. He does movies, right? Pow, 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 pow. He's like going, okay. What the hell? Come on. So now I'm, I'm really going to date myself, but um, how many of you guys read mad comic books when you were kids? Um, I, 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 I remember. Familiar you know, familiar you're familiar, so I'm really old. Anyway, uh, they used to do takeoffs, right, on big, big movies and everything. And one of the ones that they did is they did a parody of Where Eagles Dare. Remember the movie where Eagles there, Richard Burton, Clint Eastwood, world, yeah, yeah, great yeah. World War II movie. Yeah. And there's a scene just like that, Walter. They're escaping at the end. They're out the back, mm -hmm. leaning out the back of a bus. The whole German army is chasing <laughs> them, and they're shooting these schmeisers, and somehow they never run out of bullets. And, and they answered that question in the mad comic book, and <laughs> the answer was that they had ammo elves on their side oh. and when when you're the good guys you have the ammo elves on your side you don't see the reloads but they're there oh. true that's you learned probably... you learned something just now didn't you you didn't know yeah. that <laughs> are, are ammo elves are, do, do, do ammo elves have to be in the union 
Yeah. I yeah. refuse to answer that question yeah. on the grounds that yeah. I'm paid incriminate. Do MOLs have to be registered <laughs> under ATF? <laughs> yeah, do they have a, do they have a magic finger too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a again, that's, a that's good... one of those that's one of those points where it's, you know, we're trying to tell a story and whether you yeah. see a magazine change on camera or not. I mean, I think most of the viewing public nowadays understands that that MP40 doesn't have an endless supply of bullets. It, you know, they did the magazine change when they cut away to a different yeah. scene yeah. is yeah. what it is. I think people, the, the, the level of education in the, in the viewers uh, has grown so much, even just in the 20 years that I've been doing this, um, that, you know, it, it's kind of cool that you can work within a story and not have to worry about showing every single detail like that. Yeah, I don't I don't see that as much like you were talking about um, uh, the A team. I don't see that as much now in things as we did back in the 80s and 90s. Right. In movies, I, we don't really see it that much. Yeah, that's true. You actually do see like technical magazine changes on camera and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And and again, that that level of realism is being booted up by the the dedication of the actors that are willing to learn different types of guns to learn how to do these things, the dedication of the technical advisors and the onset armors that, you know, have planned out prior to filming, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of training, mm -hmm. you know, to do those kinds of things. So that when you do see it, uh, like I said, the, 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 entertainment industry mirrors the real world and you want it to mirror it as closely as you possibly can. Um, so you will see more, more realism when it comes to firearms. Now you see many shows now where, where people are going like, Oh darn, I'm out of rounds. It's, you mm -hmm. know, I, I, I'm out. I, I'm, what do I do now? You know? Mm -hmm. And that's usually when it devolves into a fist fight or a knife fight or something like that. But that's real world occurrences. You can't, carry that much ammunition on you 24 7 so um yeah. yeah i think you're right i think you don't see that kind of blind belief of endless bullets in the movies anymore mm -hmm. and again it's because of dedicated professionals that are you know practicing our craft and, and trying to bring that to the screen yeah. And I think also they see like, for for example, we were talking about John Wick. I think they see that those movies do really well, you know, and that means something. I mean, they may not get Oscars. John, I get John, it. But John yeah. Wick was an example where they I guess maybe they purposely went out and made sure everybody knew this guy trained his ass off. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was all over the Internet that he was like a shooter. Bah, 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 bah. He was doing it for real. Yeah. So you go, yeah. wow, that shit's real, you know. It ain't, it ain't CGI, which I'm not a huge, yeah. huge CGI person because after a while, you go to the theater and everything's CGI. It's like, okay. Yeah, he did a lot of training with um, Terran Tactical. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some other places, and yeah, that was that stuff actually went viral. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. It did. I mean, Terran uh, does very well at that kind of things. Obviously, he's a you know, multi-time, I think, world champion in three-gun, um, a very successful shooter. Um, he's also got the ability to teach well, which, as you guys know, someone can be very brilliant in, <laughs> in doing something, but if you don't have the ability to transfer that knowledge to someone else, you can't be a good teacher. Um, yeah. And uh, so it, it is refreshing to work with professional actors. And one of the things you got to remember about actors is one of their skills is mimicry. 
if you show them the right thing to do, they're they're very talented at picking up on you know body movement and different things like that very very quickly. That that's why they're good actors. And so if you have a good team in place, again, armors, technical advisors, you know something as trivial as having the writer discuss something with the armor because. The, the writer's trying to tell a story, but maybe they don't know very much about guns, <laughs> where the safety lever is, what guns have safeties, what guns don't, what guns have a hammer on them and what <laughs> guns don't. Um, you know, that that working together, that, that's why they call it a film crew. That, well, you're part of the crew. There's different departments and everything, but it's one giant crew that everybody's pulling in the same direction. And that's, again, that's when you come out seeing a really, really good, good film. Yeah. But what do you, you, mean, what you, you mentioned? Your father was an engineer. I don't know if you mentioned you. You said your father was an engineer. Correct. So if you if you if you're in the world of making things and you're working with engineers, a lot of times the engineers have these fabulous ideas, and this is going to be the best thing in the world. And you go, you, you can't make it. Mm-hmm. How are you going to make this thing? How are you going to machine this part? They don't have. You know, this, they the, don't within, have. The, you know, my my dad was a, a mechanical packaging engineer, which uh, basically means when you see those telemetry telemetry tables with all the screens and buttons yeah. and all that, he's the g- guy who designed that console and who put all the elements in behind the screen and everything. And there's different disciplines in engineering, and, and one of them is being a production engineer. And you're right; people come up specifically, let's say, with firearms. They'll come up with a great design that they hand built one of them in a shop over, let's say, three years. But when the design hits, the, you know, the, the market, it's altered, and that's where a a production engineer right. stepped in and said, "We're going to make this a pin instead of a screw, and we're going to make that a flathead instead of a Phillips, and things like that, so that you can mass produce things." And like anything, television show, movie, whatever, any product like that. Um, it, it's the talent of the people that are that are thinking ahead. How will you use that product so they alter it accordingly? And that's the difference between a good product and a bad product. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The engineers cannot always no. be, uh, you know, trust. My 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 dad um, was a metallurgical engineer. Okay, and uh, he he has a master's degree from Brunel, and nice. my. My dad is also the person who bought one of those Hyundai Excels when they first came out in the 80s <laughs> because it had an aluminum engine. And therefore, he believed he never had to change the oil in that thing. So <laughs> he basically I know, he, he I know, drove that till it seized. <laughs> I know many, many engineers that are actually brilliant people and they can't tie their own shoelaces. Yeah. So fa- thank God for Velcro, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's certain things that, you know, I think it's true of all of us, not just engineers. Yeah. There's certain areas where we all just have certain blind spots and we, well, yeah, we excel at some things and we don't excel at others. And that's what keeps the flavor of life interesting. Interesting. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm working on something and I and I'm like, it's like I just can't, I don't see it. Somebody else will walk up in the shop and go, "Hey, why don't you just do that?" It's like, oh yeah, okay. Why didn't I think of that? You know, it's like boom, yeah. done. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, even if you make something that's not the the best product in the whole world, any person at all who's got the ability to take a thought. It's an untangible thing. It's, it's, you can't even see a thought. It's just something that we create in our own minds and actually take it from a thought process right. to something physical that you can put in your hands. That's amazing. 
right. know, and, yeah. and that in and of itself makes it a decent product. Some are better than others, but still it's, it's admirable. Right. Yeah. Some, some folks can't, like I used to do drafting. So mm-hmm. unless you can see this thing before you start drawing it, it's hard to do. It's, it's coming up. I know. New, and, it's, right? and that's, that's a dangerous thing too, because if you draft too close to the car in front of you, you might bang in. Oh, wait, you were talking about a different type of draft. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, it's was like, that, it's like, was that deliberate or accidental? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. What was that? Oh. I mean, there's some static here. I couldn't quite, quite hear what you're saying. But, you know, unless you can see it ahead of time, it's hard to design something. It is. Yeah, it's true. it's you know, very hard to design something. And we also, um, you know, fall into a trap. Anyone who, who designs or builds something always has to be very leery of falling into the trap of designing something for yourself. It's right. like, okay, let's say I have big hands. So when I design a product that fits good in my hand, but you're not building it for yourself. You've got to build it for the wide majority of people who right. are out there. And yeah. so it is, is a very difficult thing. There, there really is no one size fits all. Yeah. It's very hard to come up with a product like that. Something yeah. really simple, like we make these stocks I was telling you about. Well, my mm-hmm. own personal opinion, I like one position, open, close. 99.9% of everything we sell is multi-position. There you yeah. go. I want all positions. Yeah, and, and not that these people ever use the other positions, but they just want Yes, it. I that's need to the, know yeah, I can That's have the odd position. thing. You, you, these people who wind up buying a multi-position item – They'll only wind up ever using one one position, at least the majority of them. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, me personally, I think, you know, fixed power stock uh, scopes. I don't need all that different magnification for most things. Yeah, yeah, you know, there, there's certain things that you know, simple is better. Um, and in the gun world, of course, any product that we use, be it a scope, uh, a, a butt stock, ammunition, different magazines it's still kind of based off of something that came out of a military environment. Right. And when you're on the battlefield with a piece of equipment, you, you know the same thing was from dealing with tanks, Walter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Simple is better. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You I mean, that, that's, that's kind of, I always say, the Russian way of looking at things. Yep. Okay, make it real simple so, so Joe from the farm can figure it out and use it immediately. He doesn't have and, to go And to... it's robust enough that you could beat it against the side of a building. Right. And because there's very few moving parts in it, there's very few things that can break. Because when you're out on a battlefield and a piece of your equipment breaks, it is it is not a pleasant situation to be in. I've never been in it, but yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's it's not and it's not just with the guns. I mean, be it the strap on your helmet or your canteen lid doesn't work right because it wasn't designed the right way. Right, right. Um, it, it becomes very, very difficult to function when your equipment is not working yeah. correctly. Let me just tell you guys something. Um, I know you guys are engineering, build gunsy kind of guys. <laughs> okay, talking all your logic and stuff like that. But from the modern gun guy, I just want to say we want to make sure we're prepared for the zombie apocalypse. So we need hang, multiple hang positions. Yeah, Hank, I'm looking up on my phone right now. I'm, I'm still stuck on engineering. <laughs> I don't. I don't actually think that that's a cromulent word. So. Oh boy. <laughs> So For sure, you know, any, any of this kind of stuff, you know, and, I, and I'm not talking about, you know, people that are, you know, negatively termed preppers or whatever. You always want to be prepared for stuff. You know, right. do, do you drive away from home in a car that doesn't have a jack in it? 
What do you do if you have a flat? You got to be able to change your own tire. Well, a lot do of you cars leave now, your house yeah. with no gasoline in the tank. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to say a lot of cars now don't even have uh, jacks or spare tires and stuff like that, right? What just happened? Uh, Walter, can you hear us? Yeah. Am I still there? Okay. Yes, yeah. you're here. You're here. Um, yeah. No, yeah. Like, for example, my the Fiat that I have, it doesn't have a spare tire. It's got a, a can of goo. Yep. And, and that you're supposed to squirt the goo in, and hopefully, it, it works. That's what they all say. Yeah, <laughs> squirt the goo in. Yeah. That's where a lot of trouble starts from. <laughs> and it comes with an air compressor, a little air compressor, I guess. I've never yeah. taken it out. I've never had to use it, but. I would much rather have a jack and a spare tire, to be honest with you. Yeah, but at least you have the can of goo and you have the air compressor. You wouldn't right. leave leave on a long road trip without it. So uh, but, this guy's right here. Or the cell yeah. phone. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I actually did it. Just, just you know, not trying to be contrarian. But <laughs> uh, leave oh, without the, without the spare tire or leave yeah, without uh, the phone. Yeah, my my car came with a kit. <laughs> <laughs> with the air compressor and everything uh-huh. and a nice little bag and all that. And I was like, I'm never opening this bag. So I took it, it out. Loses its value if you open the bag. <laughs> yeah. And left it. <laughs> and then I had tire problems from like uh I don't know, from Texas to Las Vegas, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah, I learned my lesson. Uh, I mean, that's that's why I like my Jeep Wrangler because you know it's one of the few cars that you can buy that doesn't have a 50 mile spare tire yeah, it comes yeah. with five tires you know right. and they're, they're yeah. Yeah. all full use tires which is you know just being a boy scout be prepared right. yes exactly yeah. oh oh i forgot i'm dealing with two boy scouts yeah so. and two and, and and i got two eagle scout sons too so oh. there you okay. go yeah. yeah. So let's take a let's take a quick break here. Um, just because I want to get into some guns and things like that. And I know there's a whole bunch of people. Uh, I want to get into the guns things. Also, I want to give away stuff. So what we're gonna do is, um, Larry is fr- is old school, so he has no social media. <laughs> so. <laughs> because, oh, poor Larry. Yeah. He's unlike too busy. you guys, unlike you guys, he has a Wrangler, so. If he gets in trouble, he can take care of himself. He doesn't have to go on his phone and go on Facebook and tell people to rescue him. Tweet okay, for I, I, I have a Humvee and a Pinsgauer, and everything's got a spare tire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we are going to give away stuff since it's December, so I'm going to do that here in a quick second. Uh, and what we're going to do is just give it to the people who are watching the chat right now. We have over 100 people watching. Oh, um, wonderful. Yeah, Larry and Walter can't see the uh, comments and things like that. I can. And I am going to get to uh, questions and things like that that people asked on other social media and all that stuff before we do it. Um, I want to do like a quick shout out, though. Um, there you go. 97.3. The Sky. I want to. Sh- those. These are my local radio guys here. Very nice. Yeah. And I actually went to harass them today at the radio studio and then they gave me T-shirts. So I want to shout them out. If you're in Gainesville, uh, Bob Rose and Greg Cassidy, really good guys. They're uh, Second Amendment guys, all that kind of stuff. Good good folks. I just want to shout them out. You'll probably see me like wear that in some kind of video that we put up. Um, and then let me sh- let me get into the stuff that we're giving away here real quick. If I can just do that. So there's a Hornady. Are you familiar with nice. Hornady? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a Hornady hat in here. So that's one of the things that we're giving away. Um, of course, Brownells sweatbands. Have you there still we have go. Mo- I thought you were out of those things. Almost. This, this is the last of it because Lola is getting tired of shipping stuff. Okay. So, 
<laughs> but this is, I think this is probably the very last of it. We're on the, we're on the end. And there's a bunch of stickers here, like Glock stickers. And let's see, what do we have? There's patches and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Franklin Armory. What's oh, this? very cool. Yeah, AAC. There's a bunch, bunch of swag in here. We've got stuff from Keltec. We've got all kinds of cool goodies in here. Uh, there's a We Like Shooting patch. The We Like Shooting guys were with me when we came out to ISS, Larry. Yep. Shout out to those guys. There's a wonderful patch. group of people that came out there and, and all yeah. together by Brownells. Yes, absolutely. Uh, tons of patches. Walter makes these uh, gnome patches. Check that out. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and that's the shorty shotgun that the, the gnome has, yeah, yeah. that tactical gnome has. So all of that. Uh, there's there's just a bunch of stuff in here. So we're going to give that away to someone. And uh, I'm just going to pick someone because I know Walter and, and Larry cannot see the chat. So we'll give it away to someone in there. What I'm going to ask you guys to do is make sure that you hit the thumbs ups. Make sure that you share this video as well. And uh, and then we're, we're looking for someone that we haven't given swag to in December. If you're out there, you haven't given swag. Maybe we even we can let you guys work it all out. Who out there should we give the swag to? Somebody help me out here and let me know who we're I think do that. I think you should, you know, give start by giving it out to someone who asks the best questions. Oh, uh, there you go. There you go. So someone come up with a really good question. I have one. I have what, a really what good is question. It? What's someone up? Someone asked me to ask, has CGI hurt the prop business? Mm -hmm. Good question. So I, I think um, – I don't want to say that it's hurt the prop business. It's changed the prop business a little bit. Um, you definitely have less – big massive scenes of, of guys running around with props, be they guns or other pieces of equipment, because now you can just kind of multiply the images. So you'll, you'll have maybe motion capture of 20 or 30 guys, and then they make it look like there's actually 500 guys storming the beach. Okay. Uh, so, so there's been a little bit of a change, but it, CGI to me, again, it's not supposed to be a replacement to having a guy standing there with a prop in his hand. It's kind of an addition to. There, there are places where it, it's useful. Enhances mm -hmm. things. And it enhances things, correct. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think that. movies that overuse it, we could tell the difference. That's the difference, you know, and like anything, whether it's, you know, props or CGI or too much wardrobe or too much emphasis on cars, it's, it's finding the right balance. CGI is a great tool. Uh, when I go out on set as an armorer, I don't go out with one gun. I go out with a bag full of tricks. I've got the gun. I've got a backup to the gun. I have a rubber gun. I have all kinds of different things so that when they call for a specific thing in a scene, I can pull that out. That's what you do if you're a professional and you, you know, you're, you're respect, respecting your craft. If you get too dependent on one element or one trick, the audience is smart. They pick up on that. And, and so too much CGI is not good. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I know what the I know what the Star Wars movies. Um, a lot of fans wanted to to go back more like where there was actually the puppets and stuff like that, so it was seemed more real instead of all the CGI. Yeah. And the last movies they did that, and I kind of yeah. liked that myself. Actually. Yeah, practical effects. Yeah, practical effects are always better. Anytime a filmmaker, a director can film something for real, they will always opt to do that because. Yeah. 
it, it just looks better. But there are times, you know, um, let's say Star Wars is a good example, like like you brought up. I mean, if the the alignment of the stars isn't quite right and the Death Star wasn't in the right quadrant to film that day, you yeah. might have to use CGI in order <laughs> right. to get that shot. So right. and, uh, and, everything and, in moderation. Yeah, and the yeah. way they did it way, way back when with the models and all that, some of that looked kind of hokey. So, um, you know, and, and it's, technology it, it, grows, it's, it's, it's evolved out of that. So, yeah. 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 I think a good mix of all things, like you said, it's tools. Uh, mix yeah, when, them up. The, when the spaceship is flying this way and the fire's going up, that's not usually a good sign. You know, it's, you know, there's no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it takes uh, a lot of effort to get that spaceship to, to fly in the right direction. And when the CGI flame doesn't match up with the flight yeah. of the spacecraft, it's, yeah. it's yeah. very disappointing. Yeah. yeah, the elves aren't doing their the work. Elves aren't doing their job. <laughs> and and, and even when you look at the credits of these movies, sometimes the people involved with all the computer aspect of it, it's just the the list of names goes it's, it's ginormous. It's like yeah. so that's putting a lot of people to work and keeping a lot of people buying refrigerators and cars and and uh, mm-hmm. paying their rent and stuff. So it, I hate to use this word because it's a lot of people don't like it. It trickles down. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Who asked that question, Walter? Your wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So she can't win anything. She can't win anything. So um, Disciple asked this question, and he supports us on Patreon. So thanks for that. Um, you know, I know lots of stuff going on with Patreon right now. So thanks to all the people that are still hanging in there. We're looking for alternatives. It's going to take time to come up with a better alternative to that. Um, but anyway, so Disciple, asked, uh, he actually asked a couple of questions. So I'll go. I'll take one of them. Um, Larry, what was the most outrageous gun you've made for the movie so far? Wow. Um, I would have to say that that back when I first started, I think it was either around 2000, maybe, maybe 2001. Uh, we worked on a, a movie called Showtime with Robert oh. De Niro and Eddie Murphy. Yes. Um, a brilliantly movie. horrible movie that I love. Yeah, it's it's one of those <laughs> cold classics now. Yes, I love it. Um, it had this, the, part of the storyline, in fact, was about this underground gunsmith that was making this gun and committing crimes with it. The, the gun was like a little transformer gun. It had to fold up and everything. <laughs> and we had to build that gun up. It was a very visually uh, impressive gun. I think you saw it when you were at the shop, Hank. And yes. that gun ultimately became Vera in Firefly, oh. which was another cult classic. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had the privilege that that particular project, uh, we still had a gentleman uh, named Jim Boland, who is a very famous gunsmith. Um, he's passed away now. But back then, as a young guy in the industry. I, w- I was working with him. And uh, just a funny personal story. When I was going to gunsmithing school, when I was going to college to learn all this, I could remember going to the supermarket and getting every month I'd get, you know, guns and ammo would come out. And there was an article about this one particular gun and it was made by this gunsmith. What was his name? Jim Bolin. Mm-hmm. And I can remember telling my wife when I was in school, like, wow, look what this guy did. You know, if I you know, get to be half the gunsmith that he is, um, I will feel like I've had a successful career Career. as a gunsmith. Mm -hmm. And so many, many years later to actually wind up working with him uh, was a great privilege. And um, 
it was it was really pretty cool. But I think that was probably the most challenging uh, project visually. It was the most impressive. Uh, but you got to remember that working on any of these guns and making them fire blanks correctly on a daily basis is just a very challenging uh, endeavor. Yeah, that's yeah. that's another thing too about movie guns. I hate to see these like weak weak firing gas guns to go. You know, when you shoot a fifty cal, you need to go. You know, it needs a rock yeah. and roll. On. And you can yeah, just... gas gas guns again. That's more in the special effects realm. It's not what we deal with because we right. deal with real guns that have been converted to shoot blanks. Right. Um, and that's where again, a gas gun is is a specific tool to be used in a specific scene. It's not a replacement for a real modus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so lots of people are impressed by the fact that you built Vera. <laughs> I knew that. I knew that would be a popular club. Yeah. <laughs> lots of people impressed. Uh, so uh, Pitchlock says Larry built Vera. <laughs> um, Brian well, Wyatt, me and, says, me and Jim together. Okay, yeah. very cool. Uh, Brian Wyatt says Vera is freaking rad. So there you go. <laughs> um, uh, Flopping garbage wants to know if you have a rifle in the forty watt range. <laughs> uh, you know, so. 40 watt is kind of old school at this point. We're, we're up into about the 56, 57 watt range at this point. Oh, okay. 40, right. 40 watt is, has been, been there, done that. Yeah. So uh, lots of kudos on that. Uh, Richard Hughes had a question here. He says, is the Mini 14 the favorite prop gun base? Well, the Mini 14 is a very reliable gun. And uh, back in the day, again, going back to like um, the A-Team television series, it's very prevalent uh, in those old 80s cable shows because of how modular it was. There was aftermarket stocks, there were high capacity magazines. um, And so it was very, very prevalent on television. It is, however, even in the real world, a very good, reliable gun. And so when we build things that we have to build shells around, uh, we will pick a Mini-14 or an AK-47 because of how reliable they are to build into some of these sci-fi guns that you see on camera. Okay. Okay. And, and they'll run with, like the AK will run with a barrel this long if you want it to. Yeah, AK is very adaptable platform. It doesn't matter what you do to it. It <laughs> It'll is, go bang. It's very difficult to make it not go bang, you know, and that's yeah. what we like because, you know, when you're making a movie, this is one of the oddities of the world I live in. Having come from both law enforcement and military, I know that you're trained that if you have a malfunction in your firearm, you clear the malfunction and you keep on with the fight. On a movie set, if you have a malfunction with the firearm, the whole shot is ruined because now you've got special effects going off when the gun didn't fire, a helicopter flew overhead. It takes hours to reset that. So we almost strive for more reliability on a movie set than we do in the real world, which is kind of backwards of what you would think, but it it is the truth. And so we always try to build things on very, very reliable platforms like a Mini-14, like an AK, like any of the SIG products, a Glock, things like that. Yeah, lots of people happy that the AK is getting mentioned. So <laughs> <laughs> lots of happiness. It's an icon. It's, it's an absolute yeah. icon. I mean, yeah. So uh, Rondell Stewart asked this question also on Patreon, and it's kind of connected to that. Uh, what, do, what do you consider to be your masterpiece? Is it Vera that you consider to be the masterpiece? Wow, that, that, that's a tough one. Um, 
I oh would boy. say, yeah, I mean, I would say that's in the top three. Um, that was that was quite a while ago. Um, I think my masterpiece in general, if you want to call it that, is the fact that the crew at ISS manages to do any of this. The fact that we have the inventory, we manage to keep it running, that we are able to meet all the different challenges of the different scenes that we you know, have to do. So taking almost any firearm and doing a very technical scene and being able to do it safely is something that, that I'm particularly proud of. But um, of the guns that you guys know, I'm, I'm very proud of Vera. I'm very proud of um, the crew at ISS. We came up with a very specialized firearm for the uh, series Westworld. It was kind of a hybrid of a couple of different guns. Uh, very proud of some of the work that we did uh, on Oblivion, which was a kind of a make-believe gun, but it was built around a real uh, firearm. And then, like I said, the historical scenes, anytime we, we managed to put the right firearms in the right historical film, I'm usually pretty proud of that. I'm a big history buff myself, so yeah. I like to see a nice finished product. Yeah, I think the library of guns that you guys have is amazing. I don't know the numbers, but I know it's massive, like actual real guns. So I know, I think you have airsoft, rubber guns, and then you have real guns. We do. The, the airsoft and the rubber usually comes out of our rental department. Uh, the firearms are kept separately, you know, obviously in the weapons department because they're real firearms. Even though they've been converted to shoot blanks, they're, they're still legally considered real firearms. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a little over 16,000 firearms in stock. And uh, our motto is from rocks to rockets. <laughs> so we have a little bit of everything. So we start out with some wheel locks and some match locks, and we've got all the way up to, you know, 57 watt pulse rifles and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Everyone wants to know what Walter, what kind of food okay. Walter's getting, because obviously <laughs> Walter has to get okay. food delivered in. For, for those of you that have been in New Orleans before, there's things called beignets. Which oh, are yeah. like basically just doughy. I hope you brought to share with everyone. Doughy, powdered sugar covered things that give you indigestion. And then <laughs> um, I like to have mine with chocolate milk. So, yeah. There you go. Okay. There you these go. Are, these are from uh, Morning Call in City Park in New Orleans. Yeah. So. Okay. Very nice. Very but nice. I'm going to get a chuckle as I try to eat these things. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. There you go. So, so right now, if you're listening to this on iTunes or some other place that the audio goes, Walter's having a good old time. He's I'm eating trying. plenty of powdered sugar and fried dough. Hey, tis the season, right? Uh, yeah, I don't do it every day at home, you know. So Yeah. yeah. So um, so here's another question from, uh, from Disciple before I go over to some other social media. He says, of the guns you've made for Hollywood, which one do you regret? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a very good question. I'm going to have to think about the answer on that. Okay. Um, in general, saying that, you know, anything that we've ever made that worked successfully enough that it looks good on screen you know, kind of means that you don't have one that you dislike. There might be a level of, you know, like something more, like something less. Um, I think some of the the films that we've done, there's been some background stuff where, 
We've been forced just because of numbers to use some rifles that were maybe inappropriate for the time frame of that movie. Um, so those those are things that I kind of regret. I do feel, you know, in in the movie you brought up earlier about having a hammer on a Glock, um, <laughs> that was one of those deals where they CGI'd it in after we filmed the practical gunfire. Uh, oh my god! You know, okay. with with the uh, thing. But it, so I kind of feel a little bit bad about that. But again, that was just the editors trying to tell a story, the director mm-hmm. trying to tell a story. So I understand why they did it. Yeah, because um, I, I think Ant Man wanted to get in front. I think Ant Man stopped the hammer or something like that, the and they ants. wanted to show them. Yeah, the ants. Oh, the ants. So okay. I thought that was actually a great point in the story. It's just obviously with with the wrong gun. Um, sometimes there are things that we do that we have no control over. That that's done in post production six, seven, eight weeks after filming. Yeah. You know, we're already on set working on a different movie. So um, that's probably one that I would say that I, I wish didn't turn out that way. But it's a great movie. And so I don't really think that that affected things that much. Yeah. OK. OK. You know that there's um, there's gun guys out there that their heads exploded. You don't like that stuff either. Right. When you see it, it gets gets under your skin. Of course, you know, yeah. a Western where a guy shoots, you know, more than six shots in a row without <laughs> reloading uh, a single shot flintlock where you get two shots off in a row without reloading all those <laughs> kinds of things. It's like from from the aspect of a professional who deals with firearms, as well as someone who's a big history buff, you know, it just it it's one of those things that, like I said, bursts the bubble for me when I'm watching a movie like that. If something like that happens I find it very hard to buy into the story afterwards. All right, so here's the opposite end of things. A firearm or a prop gun that you spent hours and hours and spent all kinds of time making had all these great this is going to be awesome and it doesn't make the doesn't make the cut. Does that ever happen? Like you know, not not just beating me up but like stabbing me right through the heart, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean like, like, I, I, like you even knew that that was one of the things that bothered me, right? <laughs> or, you know, you have, you think this is going to be awesome in the movie and then they don't use it. Yeah. <laughs> or they, so, um, here, here's the wonderful, wonderful story, uh, that goes along those lines. Um, our, our industry has become a global industry. So we do wind up traveling quite a bit. And, um, I personally don't necessarily enjoy travel that much, uh, for work purposes, but Hey, it's one of the things that you have to do. And um, I was working on a film where we had to mount a minigun on a rubber boat. And it was kind of a last minute deal. And they said, well, you know, you'll fly out to Hawaii one day. We'll film the scene the next day with the actress. And then the third day you'll fly back. So it's, you know, really Mm -hmm. short thing. We need you to come out and do that. I wound up out there for about four and a half weeks. Stuck out there, right? Um, literally went ready for three days, wound up there for multiple weeks. Yeah. And people and probably like, think that's fun, but that's really lonely, right? If you're not, especially w- when you're working too. I mean, it sounds yeah. like great. Oh, you were for, in Hawaii for four weeks. Well, working in Hawaii is different than enjoying the beach at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when my kids were much younger, of course, when the movie came out, the dad worked on, they'd want to go see the movie. And so we went and saw this particular movie and I swear there was probably less than two seconds of that scene oh, made yeah. it into the final <laughs> cut of the movie. Oh. 
And of course, I knew the storyline, so it wasn't terribly exciting for me. So I'm just sitting there in the dark. And mm-hmm. you ever get that weird feeling when you, you feel like someone's looking at you? And so I, mm-hmm. I kind of turn around, and here on my right are my wife and my two kids. And they're all three of them are staring at me, and they're going, really? Four and a half weeks in Hawaii for that? <laughs> right? And so... Um, yeah, it, it gets disappointing sometimes because you you really want you want your work to shine. We're all creative professional people in the industry and you want your work to shine. But by the same token, that three seconds added its part to the story. It didn't need mm-hmm. more than three seconds. The editor figured it out. They did what they needed to do. Thank goodness the paycheck didn't bounce. <laughs> Everybody walks away happy, right? right so right. It, it is kind of, you know, you take a lot of pride, at least I take a lot of pride in the work that I do, and you want that work to shine. But you got to understand that we're just one tiny little element in this giant film. Um, so as long as your part worked, you did uh, your job correctly. You should be proud of it. Yeah. I mean, although we're gun guys, and in some movies, I think the guns might be the stars, but in most movies, the guns aren't the stars. In all movies that have guns, <laughs> guns are the stars. I want you to write that down right now and remember that in future. In fact, Frank, you, can, you, you, can email, you can email the studios and tell them that, too. Yeah, um, shame for shame. If you ever want to go back to ISS, you better say all the guns. There you go. Um, yeah, you know, I, I honestly, I, I think, again, every – movie that has a gun in it the gun is just one element of telling that story it's it's no more important or less important than the pocket watch or the cigarette holder or Or the the cell phone or the holster or you know the point of dialogue where the writer wrote in the right type of ammunition that they were using what you know whatever it may be um and so i don't know that one's more important than the other i think it's more important that they all gel together correctly okay very good let me go to uh facebook um let me see okay so this question was from matt morse there's a whole bunch of questions uh what was your first gun did you grow up in a pro gun house what's your favorite movie gun what's your favorite real gun so i I think you kind of answered some of these but yeah my 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 father was uh, predominantly a small bore target shooter uh, in competition. So my first gun that I ever fired that he owned was a Ruger Mark II uh, yeah. and a Winchester uh, Model 52 competition rifle. Uh, those were my father's guns, and so I shot them. Uh, my favorite gun to shoot, I, I have to say, is going out onto the range. Like I said, I, I grew up in Israel. So being you know like a seven, eight-year-old and being able to shoot an Uzi or an AK – not many seven or eight year olds get a chance to do that. So um, I think that's pretty cool. And as far as um, a movie gun, uh, it's not something that I put in a movie because it was a little bit uh, before my time. But I think the image of Clint Eastwood with his 44 Magnum <laughs> Model 29 is, is so iconic that it's kind of, you know, gone beyond being a gun anymore. It, it's even people who are non-firearms enthusiasts know what that gun is, recognize it. Yeah, and the Dirty Harry gun. It. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very cool. Uh, there was a question there. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna show some guns that I have here. Okay. Uh, there was there was a question I saw. Actually, a couple of people asking, um, what what about the Beretta 92s? Why do we see those in movies so often? 
Well, um, I think even in the has, show, you guys had you guys use it several times in the show. Yeah, too. I think there, there's a couple things to remember. Number one, if you're dealing with anything U.S. military or law enforcement from the late '80s into almost the 2000s. A lot of law enforcement was using the Beretta 92. It was a very reliable, very common gun. And in the entertainment industry, we mirror reality. So mm-hmm. if it's if you see it a lot in the real world, if it's a good seller, if it's always on the cover of Guns and Ammo, then you're going to see it in the movies um, because we're trying to mimic uh, reality. When when people see you know, a p- specific police department and they're carrying a Beretta 92 and, and the people viewing the movie know that, hey, yeah, that police department in real life carries a Beretta 92. Again, it's an element that helps you buy into that story. As far as what we use, like on Hollywood Weapons, um, again, I pick it because of reliability, ease of use. Uh, in this particular case, as you well know, Terry uh, has some U.S. military background, and mm-hmm. the, the main handgun that he carried when he was serving was the M9 Beretta, the the military version of the Beretta 92. And so when I deal with it as, you know, the on-set armorer, because remember on Hollywood weapons, I'm not just the on-screen personality. I'm also the safety officer behind the camera and the on-set armorer behind the camera. I want to put a gun into his hand that he's comfortable with so that it comes across on camera that he's comfortable and fluid and and everything with that handgun. What, What else would I choose other than a Beretta for him. Not to say that he couldn't handle other firearms. He does other ones very well and very proficiently. But given a choice, you always want to go to that that comfort zone. Okay. I got a question. Go ahead, Walter. As As in all movies nowadays, there is paid product placement. Yes. Is there paid product gun placement? So you know, do you the, do you end up placing guns in movies that you don't particularly care for, but some manufacturer said I'm going to pay for that and you're going to put it how much it. money do you have, Walter? Well, no, no, like, I'm not asking my yeah, no, no, I'm, no, I'm just <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Due, Good question. Due to due to some licensing issues, because again, the guns are still real guns. They're not demilled in any way. When you when you see gunfire, it's a real gun shooting blanks. We usually don't do product placement as far as guns go. Um, it does happen in the industry. We have not necessarily uh, done that. We, we, again, we try to put the right gun into the right person's hand. Uh, but there have been some instances of, of product placement with some firearms. It's not as prevalent, though, as you might think, not like it is with, let's say, soft drinks or cell phones or automobiles or things like that. Chocolate, and, yeah. and by the way, even all those <laughs> promo things, when that happens, it doesn't come to us. You know, we're just a prop house. We provide usually when you have something like an automobile that's being promoted in a show, that's being done directly between the manufacturer and the production. Yeah, yeah. So that's a deal that that's outside of your hands when yeah. that comes. We of do have happens. a promo department at ISS. It's a very, very good one, but they deal with other type of hand props. You know, backpacks and cell phones and and sunglasses and wristwatches and things like that. The 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 firearms issue because it is a real gun. Still, it gets handled just a little bit differently. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Jafari H wants to know, uh, Larry, were you ever able to get hold of some? 
photon torpedoes. <laughs> they're very hard. They're very hard to come by, so I use them very sparingly. Um, and I call dibs. The, 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 the minimum order is is fifty at a time, so you also have to have a lot of room to store them. Um, I could tell you my source, but it's really not legal to smuggle these things back and forth across the neutral zone. So I'd rather not name any names right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, you did that well. Yeah. Well, he's a trekkie. He's a trekkie for sure. Professional, watch, professional, for sure. Professional. Yeah. Who if you watched. Yeah, absolutely. Armament and Axes gave us two bucks. He said, uh, are you working on Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime? Uh, we provided a lot of different props for that. Um, again, one of the odd things about our industry is sometimes we work on projects that we don't know the title because when the production company is dealing with us, they use like a code name for the production. And so sometimes we watch shows and later on we'll, we'll see it again, like six months to a year down the road, it'll pop up and I'll be going like, wow, this is a good show. I wonder who did all the guns on that. It's like, wait a second, that is our guns. We, we did provide that, you know, and it, and it, it's just one of those things because of a title or how things get released, we don't always know. But we we have provided some stuff for for Jack Ryan. Okay, very cool. Right. So we'll we'll probably ask some questions as we you know uh, as we look at some guns, just so we can get now. Larry, does this look familiar to you? Oh, very nice. Yeah, you're, you're an IDF guy. This is modified. Your time in Larry, your time in the IDF though, you were a Galil person. Actually, uh, my time in the IDF, I had what was called a glilon, which was a shorter version. Here in the United States, they call it the, the SAR. It was a yeah. shorter barreled uh, given to special forces at the time. This was in the age before the micro galil came out. So it's kind of a in-between size between the full-size galil and what, what they call here the micro galil. Right. Excellent weapon. Uh, most everything that comes out of, of IMI and IWI now uh, is very, very reliable because it has to be. Yeah. Um, so this is a Tavor. Circumstances. This is a Tavor for anyone who doesn't know. It is it's a been, Tavor, yeah. Yeah, it's been modified and stuff like that. Uh, I know this is going to sound cruel, Larry. I was going to say, you know, in your time when you were in the IDF, was it just rocks? Was it just like rocks in a slingshot? But you have been talking I was to my gonna... kids, haven't you? <laughs> he gives me a hard time too. So. Uh, I'm not that young. I'm not that young. I just like making fun of uh, of. Uh, it's a little bit older. Right? Yeah. So anyway, so what do you think about the Tavor? Are you into bullpups at all? I am. I think that bullpups okay. are a very unique uh, design concept. They always have been. They they've actually been around a lot longer than people think. Uh, there were some early bullpup bolt-action rifles in the early 1900s. Uh, it gives you, again, full-length, full-barrel-length ballistics out of a much shorter package. That is definitely the, the advantage to the bullpup. It has, does have some disadvantages, especially if you're left-handed. Uh, but I think it's it's a very compact gun. The, the Tavor itself has gone through several... Uh, field tests let's put it that way um and it and its current rendition it, it's a very successful uh, design and that's witnessed by the fact that that iwi is uh, marketing that all around the world both to law enforcement and other militaries 
very, very unique design. I, I, I tend to like it. I actually like the original Tavor over the X95, to believe it Yeah, or not. so that's what I'm showing up right now, the X95 yeah. uh, with a suppressor and stuff like that on it. So you prefer the Tavor? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, I think it's a huge advantage on the X95 that the charging handle position is where it is on the, on the left side of the receiver there. Right. Um, I do think that for training purposes in today's market, having the M16 style magazine release is also uh, a big advantage. But I don't know. There's something about the feel of the stock and the weight distribution on the original Tavor that just, I don't know, it just works better for me. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. Uh, obviously, there's a. I think this probably works better for the guys who didn't want to get a Tavor because of where all the controls and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you know, know um, uh, uh, Zalman Shebs, who's the the gentleman who designed or was the lead engineer uh, on designing the Tavor, I uh, had the privilege of meeting him several years back uh, when I got invited to. IWI as a as a guest, um, and he said something that was that has always stuck with me. Every gun design out there, like we were talking about earlier, um, it's actually a compromise. Even the designer, no matter how successful the gun might be, there's probably things that they wish they had done differently. But mm -hmm. because of a marketing process, or because of a design restriction, or because of you know material restrictions or whatever, they had to package a compromise. And I, I think that the Tavor and the X95 are probably some of the best compromises that are out there right now in the bullpup market. Okay, very cool. And then here's the uh, the, the last one I'll show you. Boom! So there we go. There's, og. there's an AUG. What do you think about the uh, What do you think about the AUG? So I've been um, you know mystified by the AUG, but you know from the very first time I. I touched one, which interestingly enough was in about 1978 or 79. Uh, the Austrians had uh, part of the United Nations peacekeeping force that was on um, the Israeli-Syrian border, uh, wow. as well as the Australians that were there as part of the peacekeeping force. They were issued, you know, OGS. And I had only ever seen one in a Guns and Ammo magazine or in a Jane's International Defense Review. So being able to get close to one was, was a kind of a unique experience for me. And I think that uh, we, when we think of the first generation of the most common bullpups out there, we think of the FAMAS, the Steyr AUG, and the SA-80 uh, from the UK. The reason those three stick in our minds is because they were the three most successful well, you know, even with its improvements, it's the same basic gun is still around. Yeah. Um, and there's other manufacturers that tried to bring out bullpups and they, they, they just fell by the wayside. So I think the, I, the AUG has a lot of things going for it. I like the fact that it can be converted into a family of weapons. Barrel changes are very easy. Um, yeah. There was even at one point a belt-fed version of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's one of the better ones. They were pioneers of having like an optic attached to a gun and everything. So um, yeah, yeah, good guns. Yeah, and I think I was looking at um, I was looking at Die Hard because uh, that's that's a yep. Christmas movie to me. And the guy does a quick change in there, and Lolo was like, "Why is he? What's he doing with the barrel?" <laughs> I don't know if you remember that in the yeah. Die Hard movie. Yeah, you know, Die Hard. 
Die Hard was one of the first movies that introduced the Styrog as well as the Glock 17 um, to the U.S. market. Uh, they sold the Glock 17 more so in Die Hard 2, but some of the weaponry in, in Die Hard 1 was very, very uh, unique, and the AUG being one of them. Yeah. So now I'm going to pull out this – is, this is my – for show and tell, this is the thing I've been waiting on here. So – you know, you're talking about the Glock. Yep. I do. I do have a Glock in this bag, believe it or not. There you go. So um, have you heard of the folding Glock? Yes. Yes. OK, so so from full <laughs> from full conceal, there is a folding Glock in this bag. There it goes. Let I haven't hate. seen this in movies yet. Larry. Let, the hate, let the hate begin. Yeah, there's going to yeah. be a lot of hate right now. There's going to be a lot of hate. This is a Glock 19, not a 17 Glock 33 round magazine. That was in that bag. Uh, what do you think about these? Yeah, we have some of those in stock right now, and I think come 2019, you'll be be seeing more of those, both in television and um, in film. I think they're a, a very unique idea. Again, to me, a firearm is just a tool, and you always need to use the right tool for the right job. So um, that's obviously not a officer's duty carry gun. Um, but there are some applications for some, you know, uh, very deep concealment, uh, very James Bondy, obviously. Um, yes. So they're, they're, I think it's one of those products where we still need to see the developing role that it will play uh, in the marketplace. Yeah. So definitely, I should just go. Definitely cool. Yeah. I should just make a movie right now so I could be the first person to put it in a movie I'll see you know and, uh, and, and Walter I think he I think he missed the point there about yeah, I think he's I a little slow, he's a little slow sometimes the time yeah. capsule and that we may have already filmed how long has that been out for a year now yeah, yeah, actually. Uh, yeah. You missed it, Hank. You missed it. Yeah, Larry probably saw those before any of us ever saw them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I couldn't resist. I just I couldn't resist it. I had to pull. I had to it's pull, definitely a I had cool to, product. Yeah. yeah. Um, so here I've got some questions here. I'm kind of putting uh, a bunch of different things together. And, and by the way, the folks out there and probably Lola, if she can hear me, if she's not too busy, you got to help us figure out who we're giving the swag pack to. But I'm going to take some questions and put them together. Um, some people want to know if you ever like came across problems with actors who were anti-gun <laughs> and if you had actors that were difficult to train with guns or easy. We're I know scared. we don't want to. Yeah, yeah, I know this is probably one of those things where we're like on the line. I don't want to get you in trouble with anyone out there. <laughs> yes, of course no, maybe. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I think I, I think I had mentioned it before that uh, good actors, one of their primary skills is mimicry. If you have a good technical advisor or a good armor who can show them the right way to handle the firearms, it comes across because they're good actors and they, they mimic it correctly. Um I don't think I've ever, you know, had to deal with anyone that's anti-gun. Definitely, there's people who are more proficient at handling guns in Hollywood than others. But that's just because of the different types of roles that they've been dealt uh, throughout their careers. Um, usually, it's kind of like I've been portraying it. Most actors realize that a gun is a prop. It's a prop that they need in their movie, just like they need other props in their movie. Nobody wants to be seen as kind of being a Barney Fife kind of fumbling 
guy there. I just used a reference that nobody knows, right, Barney uh, Fife? I've heard of Barney um, Fife. That's yeah, something. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> shut up, Hank. Um, but, you know, so, so I think they, you know, professional actors, you know, p- people, you got to remember, everybody does their own job because it's fun, but it's also, it's a profession. People who are professional actors want to practice their craft professionally. So even if they haven't done a lot of action movies before, if now they're dealt this, this role of now I'm a super action star and I'm going to use guns, they actually want to do it well. They want to look good on camera doing it. They want to, you know, practice safety and stuff like that. And that is where the, the onset armorer uh, comes into it. So um, I think, you know, at least, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's somewhere between like 75 to 80% of all production has at least one gun in it nowadays. Mm. Okay. So I think professional actors have come to recognize that it's just a common tool. It's another prop that they have to deal with. You know, back in the days of, you know, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. and, and you know, John Wayne and, and Robert Mitchum, if you were a movie star, you needed to know how to sing and dance and fence. You needed to know how to sword play and things like that. And so, Maybe we've moved a little bit away from that, but now firearms and computers and cell phones and laptops, those are the new skills that you need as a film star, and you need to look natural using them. Okay. So, and then probably the political side of it that some of these questions are geared towards probably comes afterwards. Like they don't want to get into that on the movie set and mess with the paycheck. Let's get to the bottom line. They want the paycheck. Well, again, if they don't act, they don't get the paycheck. So, I mean, you know. Yeah, and I think people who maybe, you know, get involved in a movie once and have to deal with a bunch of it, if they decide that they don't like that element of their job, they'll pick other projects next time and not Mm -hmm. ones that are geared to that. There are some very, very talented actors in Hollywood that mainly, you know, we call them action stars. And you can't think of an action movie without a lot of gunplay in it. And uh, some of them are, are highly proficient, not just because they train on their own, but because of how many different movies they've done with firearms and everything. And it's always a pleasure to work with, with people like that because you're working kind of on an even level. You know, when you tell them to do something, you know they know what you're talking about. But it's also fun to, to meet new people who haven't done it before. And, you know, teaching is a very rewarding um endeavor it's it's nice to be able to see people's eyes light up be they children or adults that when you're trying to teach them something and they finally get it it finally clicks you know you you feel like you've achieved something and so it, it we we have all kinds in in hollywood just like you have them in any other industry yeah and um here's what i would say if you guys want to see some people that are that are really this stuff you should look at hollywood weapons i know you guys had tom Selleck. Yep. Um, uh, you, you, Gary Sinise was on. Gary Sinise is on there. We all know, you know, where these guys come down on things. Uh, who else did you have? I think you had some other guys from TV shows and stuff like that. Oh, uh, we right? had, yeah, we had a bunch of Nick Searcy was on. Um, we had, um, I think we had someone from the original Predator movie on at one point. And uh, it is nice to see these people that portrayed a specific thing in a television show or a movie with a gun. And, mm-hmm. and they wound up coming out on the set. We've kind of incorporated that into, 
you know, the show as a regular element because they wanted to know if it was doable or not. You know, the, the mm-hmm. stunt that they did in the movie or in the television show with a blank fire gun, they actually wanted to come out and be involved in the show because they wanted to learn for themselves whether it was realistic. And that that was kind of really one of my high spots on, on Hollywood Weapons that we found out that Tom Selleck actually watched the show before yeah. we even asked him to be on the show. Oh, wow. It's like, wow, okay. someone like that is actually watching the show. That's pretty yeah. cool, you know. Yeah, he's a for real gun guy. Oh, he's a magnificent guy. So yeah. is Gary Sinise. Mm-hmm. Um, by and large, most of the people in the industry are really wonderful people. Um, Tom specifically is very knowledgeable about guns. He's he's kind of a gun guy himself. He Yeah, has some you know, very cool guns. Absolutely. And he's just a genuine, genuine nice guy, as is his wife and his his whole support crew and everything. We were felt very privileged uh, to be with him on the show. And then the Gary Sinise Foundation opened up the museum, the Gary Sinise Foundation Museum to us and allowed us to film there. Gary does some fantastic things for the troops. Uh, and again, he's just a downright, just normal, nice guy. And it's it's nice to work with people like that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, not just because you're here, but I think folks should really try to look at this show and check it out. Um, Terry Shepard, that's your co-host. We haven't spoken yep. about him because you told me you don't want to talk about him at all because you don't really like him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the cool things, um, the, the, first of all, the show it, it is enjoyable to, to make this show, Hollywood Weapons, um, but for me, it's actually very stressful because, again, I'm not just the one of the on-camera guys uh, Terry's the host, I'm the co-host, but I also, you know, help the writer put the technical elements in. I help build the things out on set. I'm the safety officer on set. Yeah, so you're responsible. I'm responsible for all of that. And because we deal with live gunfire or live explosions and things like that on Hollywood weapons, as opposed to blanks when we're doing it in a movie, the, the, my stress level is a little bit higher on that show. At the same time, because the production people, the crew, everyone from, from the network down to the lowliest you know, person on the crew, every one of them is so top-notch it's actually an enjoyable show to work on. And, and I think for both me and Terry, that comes across. That's one of the things that people most comment about is this kind of easy banter that goes back and forth between me and Terry. And for me, working with Terry, it's like, hey, the guy's a former special forces guy. He's handled weapons before. He understands that I'm controlling the kind of the the safety weapons aspect when we're on set. But by the same token, I know he understands what I'm telling him. If I say, don't do X, Y, Z, he doesn't question it. He understands there's a good reason. And so he just, you know, takes his marching orders as it is. And between the two of us, everything we contribute to the show, I think is what really makes the magic there. And and that's really something that just came about. um, You can either say that it came out by coincidence or you can say that it came about because the universe 
knew that it was the right thing, but this chemistry between myself and Terry, and now, of course, we have a little sidekick, Pompeo. Yeah, Pompeo's funny, man. He's real funny. He's a funny guy, also just he's a, a great, great actor. Guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. As is Andre, you know, when we bring in our special effects crew, all those guys, it's one of those things that just because the, the show is so, gosh, it, it's going to sound like a cliche, but it is called Hollywood Weapons, but the show is so not Hollywood. It's very little of it is scripted, very, you know, and you can kind of tell in the dialogue that goes back between myself and Terry and Pompeo when he's there. Um, it just came about as one of those very natural things. And, and it, if you, I'm not going to make this a shameless plug for the show, but if you're not watching the show, I think you're missing out on something because um, the, the highest point for me of Hollywood Weapons was me and Terry were at an outdoor channel event uh, a couple months back in Texas. And I was just, just amazed at how many parents were coming in with their children. And they would tell us that they want the kids watch the show with them. And it's not like, oh yeah, dad's making me watch the show. It's like, no, here's an 11 year old kid that knows every episode that we did. And it's because of the blend of both the firearms and the movie aspect and everything. And you look at that and you go like, wow, here's, here's this guy who's coming in with his 76-year-old grandmother. And she enjoys the show. She's not a gun person. But because of the, all the elements that were brought in, it's entertaining. And to be able to say that we were involved in a show like that, wow, that, that's a good feeling, I got to tell you. It means we're doing yeah. something right. Yeah, I think you guys are doing a great job. I think, um, you know, there's obviously chemistry and stuff like that there. But I think you guys, um, I find you guys to be genuine, uh, very intelligent, despite how you guys look. <laughs> you know? Wow. Could, I had to sneak that one in. Sorry. Why you got to bring my face into it? <laughs> I didn't bring it up. That's <laughs> no, but you would think, you know, you would think that you're dealing like with uh, Terry, for example. I mean, you know, every, you know, obviously he's a special ops guy. So were you. Right. You did. Yep. You did some special ops stuff, but he's very he's very intelligent. He's a very intelligent guy. Um, and I like how you guys play off of each other. Um, you know, he didn't plant this question, but is, is the, the stress have anything to do with Rick O'Shea? I got to ask about Rick O'Shea before we get out of here. Well, me and Rick go back a long ways and we've had yeah. kind of, you know, that that love-hate relationship. But yes, Rick O'Shea is always <laughs> the, the, the gremlin, you know, in in yeah. the episode yeah. and uh, Why do you why do you say Rick O'Shea? That's the question like from the first time I watched the show and I heard you say Rick O'Shea I'm like what is going on? I you know, I just I honestly I never people always laughed at it and and I guess they feel that I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. But, mm. you know, there was a cartoon character that was called Rick O'Shea. <laughs> and it used to be in the comic strips and everything. It's like, I guess I just okay. grew up thinking that that was the correct way of saying it. And it oh. is because everybody else is wrong. So oh. they can laugh at me okay. if they want to. But, you know, I'm there as yeah. the safety officer. I have to protect Terry and the crew from Rick O'Shea's. <laughs> so <laughs> the there. evil Rick O'Shea's. Yeah. I thought maybe, you know what? I thought um, maybe this has something to do with growing up in Israel. I don't know. <laughs> this Is this how the Israeli people say ricochet? But You know yeah. what? It, it is a kind of a weird thing. I, and I find myself kind of getting caught sometimes my wife usually is the one that brings it up to me but having grown up in a foreign country from a very young age a lot of times i i think 
in the foreign language. Because to me, it's not foreign. That's what I grew up with. And so every now and then I'll, I'll say something, a certain phrase or whatever, and in my mind it sounds right because yeah. I'm thinking in a different language. And when it comes out of my mouth, it just comes out just like it loses something in translation. It just yeah. changes a little something. Bit. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, that might have something to do with it. But I always bring up, you know, a couple things when you're thinking about it. You know, people have been writing Hebrew for like the last 3,000 years. And it, it goes from, I don't know if you know this, but it goes from right to left. It doesn't write from left to right. And they'll see me like writing something in Hebrew because I'll still make notes for myself in Hebrew. And they'll go, oh, you're writing backwards. Well, no. It was correctly written from right to left. English is backwards. <laughs> okay, right? now hang on a second. Somebody's hey, corrected. What? what? Some, <laughs> someone's correct you in a way that the person correcting you can they read Hebrew? Sometimes yes, oh. sometimes no. Usually, usually <laughs> yeah. it's people who can't. And that's the other yeah. thing that I tell them when they can read, write, and speak Hebrew as well as I read, write, and speak English. You know, then they can laugh. They laugh at me all the time at work because my my handwriting is so horrible. Well, I learned English as a second language. It wasn't, you know, it yeah. wasn't my mother tongue. So what do you want? Get off my back, yeah. you know? We could have, Walter and I could have used you. I know we did a video about, um, like, Walter has a bunch of machine guns being a manufacturer mm -hmm. and obviously a collector and stuff like that. And we were doing uh, the Uzi video, right, Walter? Yeah, Where we're yeah. trying to, yeah, yeah. I think you had a, you had a Uzi that had, um, yeah, that it was. Hebrew on it, yeah. Yeah, it had Hebrew on there. We couldn't figure out what it was. So, you know. Yeah, those those are the, the rare ones. Most of the ones imported into the United States, you know, they have like English markings or Latin markings for the safe, the fire, right. you know, the fully automatic. The, the rare ones are where you find, you know, the Hebrew writing on uh, the receivers themselves or even on the magazines. Some of the older ones will still be mil literally military surplus magazines. Right, and right. you'll see the writing in Hebrew that says like, you know, 25 round magazine and things like that. Yeah. So, OK, I'm, we're going to we're going to start wrapping it up because we've already we've done. Um, I think we've done like two hours already. Yep. But oh, there uh, you go. Yeah, it, was, it, it just went by, man. It was so much fun. Time flies. Yeah, you know. So one thing, a quick thing I want to ask you, because we do, every now and then we do a show on movies here where we look uh -huh. at a gun movie and then we kind of like, you know, talk about the different guns in there. and Talk about know. talk about the 100 round magazines and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> talk about that stuff. So, so lots of folks or people in the chat wanted us to ask you, um, what movie do you think we should do for our next one? Um, well, of course, I don't know what movies you've already done. I think um, we did uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Okay. And we did the movie Heat so far. Okay. So I think those are the those are two I can remember. I think that might be all that we've done. Yeah, that's all we've done. So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, two of my favorite movies, which I would always recommend to a movie audience as well as a firearms audience. Um, my number one favorite movie of all time, of course, is Lawrence of Arabia. Um, okay. It's a fantastic movie, uh, and you've got Germans, and you've got British, and you've got Turkish troops, and you've got just a variety of different things. Rolls-Royce armored cars that show I win. up in it. All, I the win. Things, <laughs> all those things that, that are correct to the period. And so um, Omar Sharif shooting you know, a number one Mark III, how much better can you get than that? I, I would look at that movie. It's a long one, but it, it's got some very interesting firearms-related things in it. And then okay. the, Lawrence the second, of Arabia, we'll try to dig that up from 
5,000 years ago. Ha, okay. ha, ha. <laughs> um, and then the other, what I think, in my opinion at least, is probably the best uh, war movie ever made um, is A Bridge Too Far, uh, which oh, okay. was about the airborne operation in Arnhem in, in 1944. Um, there are a few, you know, mistakes, like some of the German troops have the wrong rank patch on their uniform or whatever. But when it comes to the firearms and everything, it's it's a very well-done movie. Um, and you, sh- you should look at those uh, two movies uh, definitely. There's lots of other ones out there, um, but those, those are two of my favorites. Okay, very good. What do you think about that, Walter? You no, feel justified good. now. Those are good. Okay. And also, I'd like to bring up just real quick. We'll leave. We won't know. Back in the old days, the movie companies, the studios owned all the firearms. Correct. You know, there there, there used to be what was called the studio system, and not only did they own firearms, but they owned their own props. They owned basically their own actors. You signed the contract, yeah, yeah. and you were either with RKO or you were with. Fox. You didn't get to just make a movie for any production company that came along. The the studio system is no longer really in effect. And that's how civilian or non-studio prop houses like independent studio services uh, were able to come about and survive in the marketplace. And was it like the late 70s when the studios sold off all their guns? Pretty much. That's that's kind of when the the studio system started uh, ending if you want to put it that way and it wasn't just the firearms it was a lot of other equipment as well now there's whole lighting companies where you can go and just rent lighting packages all that stuff used to be you know camera packages it used to all be owned and on the lots uh that's no longer the case right okay um okay so lola you got to let me know who wins the prize because i have no idea who wins the prize so you guys have to let me know that um, Walter, I don't know if there was any last minute questions or anything like that you wanted to have. That I see lots of people minute. saying like great movie, great movie picks, Larry. Good. So now I will be forced to watch a movie from 1920 something and I will have to talk about it, but I guess <laughs> I'll get, I'll get an yeah. education. <laughs> yeah. There'll be no, yeah. you know, there'll be you know. no guy either, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think, listen. I, I think I'd much rather talk just talk to Lola. You know? <laughs> no, look, I, I'll watch them. I've seen Lawrence of Arabia, I think, a long time ago. Here's uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing to remember, and I know that both of those movies are not very modern, um, but they're kind of in the, you know, if if we talk of current day as the end of our movie inventory span and you talk about like Buster Keaton in the silent era as the beginning those two movies that I picked out are kind of like in the plum middle in the golden age of it and I think the reason they're so good is because we're emulating all those movies from the golden age yes. uh, we're coming up with new stuff now and it's great all the technology that we're using but but the people that made those movies they did it for real they didn't have CGI they didn't have some of the technology that we have nowadays. And so what you see on screen is they actually did it all. And I think that comes across, like like Walter was saying earlier, you can't have too much CGI in a movie because it starts looking that way. It just looks too fake. You, you need the right balance. 
And people like the directors of, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, the technical advisors, I mean, on, on uh, the Bridge Too Far, they had people who were actually at the historical event. They were in the battle right, right. being technical advisors for the film. And so that realism just comes across, at least for me it does. Uh, watch the films and let me know if you think so too, Hank. Yeah, absolutely. I think I remember from like 40 years ago when I was uh, six years old, Lawrence of Arabia was a pretty beautiful movie. <laughs> You're just not going to let go of that, are you? Just you enough, know. In these movies, just a number of extras and all that stuff. You don't see why don't, why, don't you, why don't you say something, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, his story happened in World War One, So it was in the, in the early 1900s. Why don't you go say something like, you know, my name is Lawrence. So was he named after me? Is that, is that how old I am? You said, no, you, actually, you, said, you said you were going to be a shot show, right? So I'm going to meet you face to face in the near I'm, future. I'm right? going to get it. I know. I know. I'm just kidding. We we love you, Larry. We love you. I, I love know. you personally. I even know um, you want to usually gets all this crap. So you, I'm glad to see you. So you're just happy that I'm on the show. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. Because I'm a couple days older than you. So there yes. you go. We will watch the movies and we will dedicate them to you, Larry. Oh, there you go. We will dedicate them to you. Um, so, so so Lola tells me that Knife, Knife is the winner. He's the winner of the prize Congratulations. package. Yeah. Knife. Con congratulations to Knife. Um, you know, I want to thank everyone that like asked questions and all that. I know we didn't get to everyone's stuff. Larry, you're like an awesome guest, man. Uh, I really uh -huh. enjoyed you. I hope you enjoyed being here. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you so much for asking me on the show. You guys have been uh, fantastic. You, uh, I was very happy to meet you when you guys came through with the Brownells tour um, one of the things that you said to me at the time that, that kind of uh, stuck in my heart, to be honest, was when you and I were just talking on the side, you, you said you were really happy to meet us because we were real genuine people doing the real work and just doing it for real and, and in, in a professional way. And that that really meant something to me. And I, I want to return the, the compliment to you as well. Um, been a great Thank you. I must have been I must have been drunk or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah either must... that or you thought you were talking to somebody else. I don't know. What, what, Someone wrote that on a piece of paper and said, make sure you say this. <laughs> no, but thank you. No. Thank you, Walter. It was nice meeting no, you. Thank you for having me on the show, yeah. Hank. And thanks to Lola for all the behind the scenes assistance and everything. And I look forward to seeing uh, all you guys at SHOT Show. Yeah, I'd like to meet you. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it, it really, uh, so here's the thing. I, I really am a lover of movies. I've always wanted to make movies. And um, I mean, that's why I do you. YouTube, right? Because yep. that's where I, I can get in there and control it. And, and we look at a lot of stuff that we do is making movies, uh, except in live action, using real guns, a lot like what you and Terry do. Um, and so to me, it was an honor. I'm, I'm really happy that you came on. I think you've been like the greatest guest we've had on so far. Oh, wow. Up to the wow. That's, <laughs> wow, that was no, that, did you now you're making that? me blush. Oh, did you write that? <laughs> yeah. Uh hopefully we'll get you to come back on. Is there anything before before we end the show? What do you want to promote? Um when when does the show, the new season start? Well, season three of Hollywood Weapons starts on Saturday, uh January 5th. Um, you're gonna love it. It it's uh if you've been following the show, you know every episode we've kind of raised the bar higher and higher. Uh, season two was way better than season one. Season three is just amazing uh, what the crews managed to do. Uh, Dan Ram, the writer, as well as uh, Tim and everybody at Wintercom who originated the show and our director, John Carter, they've, they've done an amazing job. So I know you're going to like it. 
Um, definitely watch that. I also, as a general note, would say that um, I encourage people, whether you're watching television or you're in the movie theater, um, stay till the end of the, the, the credit roll. Don't, don't just stay because it's a Marvel movie and they might have some after credit <laughs> scene. Stay because you're, you're actually paying attention to the names that go by on the credit roll. Walter mentioned that earlier about, you know, it's just amazing how many people put an effort in to make those two hours of entertainment. And they spend weeks and weeks, if not months and months away from their families. Sometimes it's extremely long hours and some very, very um, inhospitable uh, locations. So making the movie isn't always as fun as watching the movie, uh, but you should watch and read those names and appreciate the work that those, those people do. And then you'll start actually recognizing some of the names on different projects, and you'll realize that the level, hey, I like A-level movies, and guess what? I always see that one name keep popping up in all these yeah. different. Larry Standoff. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't say that. I, I mentioned everybody else, but you know, I, I can't say. You know, I can't be responsible if you bought that up, Hank. Uh, it's true, <laughs> but um, no, it's it's it. Like I said, a film crew is called a crew because it is a a collaborative effort of everyone, be mm -hmm. it the transpo drivers or the craft service people mainly in my opinion it's mainly due to the people that you never hear about that put in just a huge effort and those are the people you should sit and watch those names as the credit roll goes goes by absolutely absolutely walter before be, well said and before i end walter what do you want to say to the folks out there because we won't see them until the new year so did you do you have any messages we'll be, we'll be back in the shop on this coming monday so okay all right Yep. All right. So there you go. So on behalf of myself, Walter, Larry, Lola, um, all the folks out there, we want to wish you guys like a very merry, happy new year to everyone out there. I hope 2019 is everything that you want it to be. Be safe. Be safe. Amen. Yeah. Be safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Be safe out there. Um, try to enjoy your families. Remember, that's really what's important, like family, love of each other. Um, that's really the most important thing. Um, I look forward to seeing all you guys in the new year, seeing everyone at SHOT Show. It's going to be a great time. Anything else anyone wants to say before I get out? Just happy new year. Happy well, new yep. year. Happy well new said. year. Okay, hey, we're out of here. Stay happy right there. Yeah, <laughs> jazz hands, right. Stay right there, Larry. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to end it now. Happy New Year, guys. We're out of here. We'll see.